Tetra was the first site that we introduced the infinite adjust system on the front end. With previous sites, we had what we call a hopscotch or plug and play type of scope housing, where you had to bolt the scope housing to the frame to find the correct location. The Tetra changed that with the infinite adjust system. So now, when you sight in your 20 yard mark, you can really fine tune by sliding the whole scope housing up and down in this channel system. That's probably one of the biggest features to the Tetra. Another key feature of the Tetra is Ninja Star yardage wheel. Getting a better hold on the yardage wheel, especially when you're hunting and you have heavier gloves on. The Tetra does have 100 yard capabilities with the yardage tape and that's to the yard. A couple other key features of the Tetra is you get both third and second axis for even more precision. But one of the key features as far as looks goes is we've updated the front end or the housing of the Tetra. So now you have a brighter, larger uh, scope ring which helps with peep alignment as well as a built-in scope level which is just more secure. The Tetra is available in a fixed frame bracket with, with three different mounting locations as well as a dovetail or tournament edition uh, so you can adjust the distance that the scope housing is away from your bow and the Tetra is also available in three different scope housing sizes. You get an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarter, as well as a new four pin multiple pin head. All the heads are interchangeable. All the Tetras are compatible with any of our accessories. For more information, you can visit our website at www.hhasports.com. Hello, we're at the BATA show at uh, Veteran Innovative Products, uh, an all-American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran 4-Blade. As you can see, 4-Blades got a lot of the same high-quality materials we use with our original 2-Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay, those compress, and then the broadhead opens. It still has our momentum management compressible blade technology. So the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed. Uh, in flight, it's one inch by inch and a quarter. Another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like. So swap the tip out, get you 125 grains instead of 100, which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click and another click on the other side. It's completely set in, will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to another episode of Bucks America Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Vance. And tonight's episode is a pretty fun one because uh, we I've had a curiosity about tinkering. And when it comes down to tinkering, I'm talking about ammunition. Now, growing up, my dad reloaded. This is back in the 80s throughout the early, early 90s until he got a divorce. And, but that was one of the things he used to, he used to competitively shoot shot. And he used to take first, second, third place for doing clays and such. But he got in the point where he wanted to reload because, you know, man on a budget had to figure out a way to figure out ways to maintain his hobby. So that was one of the things he liked doing. And plus, it just kind of allowed him to zen out because we all have 
that one hobby that we like we can get involved with and just before we know it, 12 hours had just passed and we've done nothing productive, but except just have fun for what we like doing. You know, we, we work for a hobby to continue uh, our mental sanity from the day to day. And I brought, I'm bringing on Al Quackenbush here and he has a nice following. He started, he has a blog that's really blossomed to multiple relationships. One, one, one in common is HHA USA and HHA uh, sports. And it's the, the SoCal bow hunter. That's his um, blog. And he's also does a multiple, as, multiple facets on other things too. And uh, we're also going to be talking about the upcoming shot show because this episode will be releasing this week. So this way then it'll roll into shot show. So Al, I want to find out more about who you are because Chris Ham has been pretty influential in a lot of people's lives, and he does a really good job of expanding others' spiderwebs. I'm sure you're familiar with that term that he likes using. And it's like our paths finally had an opportunity to cross. And I'm really excited to learn more from a 30-year veteran when it comes down to reloading. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And, and yeah, Chris is uh, very influential in, in connecting people. Uh, you know, I've known Chris for, for a while. We've been really, really great friends for four years, probably now, uh, talk every week, text each other, probably every other day. We're probably worse than, you know, a couple girls, but, uh, you know, he's, he's one of my best friends. So that's uh, really nice to hear. Uh, Chris and I text quite frequently and how did your guys' paths cross? Interesting story. Uh, I did a review on my blog. One one of the things that I I part of the reason I wanted to, I started my blog was there wasn't a whole lot of information shared in in California, uh, Southern California. Just didn't get didn't get that. Uh, so I wanted to be able to share it. I figured information would be good to be shared. So uh, I did a, a review on one of the optimizer sites. 12 or 13 years, I don't know, maybe 12, 11, 12 years ago, something like that. My, my timing might be off, but uh, Chris told me the story. I actually heard about it for the first time, but he saw the review, printed it out, took it out. You know, he and his brother went fishing and he, he brought it to uh, his brother's attention that, you know, we should talk to this guy and, and uh, he, he writes well and, and uh, you know, he's, he's honest. And so Chris and I connected and we'd email back and forth and, and everything, but nothing, you know, friendship really didn't, didn't spark uh, right then and there. But I, I've reviewed and, and been on their staff now for over a decade. And then uh, four years ago, you know, uh, a lot of people know this about me, but uh, um, my wife and I were in the uh, Vegas shooting. And so after the Vegas shooting, uh, he and I connected and really started talking about, you know, our faith and both of us were just going through some, some stuff and we connected on a high level there. And we, we both can talk to each other. I mean, from, from day one, when we started talking to each other, we just like, we've known each other for, you know, our entire lives. Uh, 
so we started just sharing information and and uh talking to each other and now we can bust each other's chops and and uh um you know talk about anything and everything under the sun it can be from hunting all the way to you know our faith that is a very rewarding experience you know i i've gotten a couple of books from him we've exchanged books and such and the re- i've been reading his uh dominion recommendation that he gave me a couple of years ago i don't read it all i haven't read it all but i like reading each testimonial that's in it and it's uh very appreciative you know and it's like it's got me thinking about my own testimonial about what happened to me years ago and putting it out on to, for others to listen to to how i overcame my struggles uh 15 16 years ago now so uh, it is uh it's good to talk about those trials you know that we've all gone through the, the strength that that we is created from that experience to help others. And uh, it is uh, a rewarding how it can touch somebody's life and change their perspective on themselves and, and how they can overcome it just by put mind over matter. To find out more about Al here, I want to, I want to get to your youth. I want to find out like, what are you, have you always been an outdoorsman? What drew you to the outdoors? I, uh, I used to go with my, my dad and my grandfather when I was, I don't even know how old before I, you know, picked up a rifle, uh, which was at nine years old. My, I've got a, a, a 22, semi-automatic 22 that's been passed down four or five generations to my family. And my dad gave it to me when I was nine and basically taught me firearm safety and taught my brother firearm safety at the same time, my brother two years younger than I am. So we got into it right away, but then it was just with that rifle mainly and that and a 20 gauge, but it was uh, a bow and arrow. Uh, my dad put a fiberglass bow and cedar arrows in our hands and set up, you know, three or four hay bales in the side yard and just said, go at it. And we sat there playing cowboys and Indians, you know, train robbers, whatever you want to, ha- you know, call it. Uh, all the time and never really focused on, uh, you know, good target practice. We just got into it that way. And then when I was 13, my dad bought me my first compound bow and I was hooked, uh, practiced all the time with it. Got my first deer when I was 14. And from then on it, uh, I was always involved with some part of the outdoors, hunting, fishing, you name it. And it wasn't until probably 10 years ago that I really started honing in on certain aspects, uh, you know, getting properly set up, doing things the right way. Uh, You know, I'm born and raised on a farm, so we did things that, you know, got the job done and it worked out well, but when I came out to California, I realized talking to a couple of uh, pro archers and uh, instructors, you know, there were things that I was doing that were, that were incorrect. And I'm not shy about taking advice. You know, if somebody wants to give me advice, if I'm doing something wrong, please let me know. You know, it's, it's up to me whether or not I, you know, heed the advice, but I, I got some really great advice and I really, really learned from that. And the rest is history. Uh, you know, I shoot all the time now and just about every day. 
That is pretty nice. Now in California, do you, do you live in the outskirts? Do you live in the rural areas? So this way you can without having any issues with the neighbors or law enforcement. Cause so a lot of places, oddly enough here in Wisconsin, a lot of places you can't shoot in town. So it's like, you have to be outskirts and it's like, you wouldn't want to risk getting in trouble shooting your bow in, in town. Cause you, you never know what's going to, what's going to happen. Plus you don't want to have your, uh, a, a sour taste in the law enforcement's, uh, mind when it comes down to dealing with that. So how do you able to do that? Cause it's like, I'm, I'm jealous of those that get to shoot every single day. Well, I wouldn't say it's hundred percent legal, uh, but I, I shoot in my garage <laughs> and I shoot from my garage. I mean, I've only got about 18 yards, but in order to keep my arm and keep my muscle memory there and, and really key in on it. I mean, out here in California, I can hunt year round and I want to make sure that if I get a chance to, I'm ready to go. I don't want to be trying to draw my bow back and, and being in pain or just can't do it. So, uh, I do that, but I, I go over, there's a, we have an archery range about, uh, less than four miles from me. Uh, and they, that's where they had the 84, uh, Olympic, you know, uh, archery competition. So I can go over there, set up my target, shoot for two, three hours if I want to, and, and go from there. So a lot of my friends and I'll, I'll meet up over there when we can, but, you know, work, life. You know, I said, I've got a target set up in my backyard now. I'll, I'll fling four to 12 arrows and just make sure I stay limber. That is uh, a valid fact. Cause, uh, if you don't, your body, you really, your, your muscles will let you know when you're not ready, uh, with here being West, like certain counties in Wisconsin, we can hunt all the way up until January 31st, which, which I can. So I try to keep my shoulders and everything in line. I have uh, what to call an acubo. I bought her a couple of years ago to work on my wife's form and her release and just kind of build muscle ups this way. Then she feels more confident. But when I'm sitting here in my office, and I have nothing going on. I'll grab it and just draw back. I won't release it, but it's just like I'm simply drawing back and getting to my anchor point and leveling everything out and then slowly letting, letting it back down. Just kind of, just keep those muscles limber and that muscle memory active and such. It's a, it's a great tool to have. Yeah. You know, my, uh, I got one for my dad a few years back. He had some shoulder issues and he still plays around with that, you know, from time to time, got his shoulder back into it. And, uh, I considered, you know, getting one, uh, I tore my rotator cuff a few years back and, you know, when the, <laughs> the surgeon said, yeah, you're going to be out of, you won't be able to shoot a bow for nine months to a year. I was like, yeah, then I'm not having the surgery. What, what can I do beside that? And he said, you know, physical therapy, so I just lowered the poundage on my bow and went to physical therapy and I just kept practicing with my bow every day and I didn't have surgery and I'm, I don't have any pain anymore either. I built up the muscles around it. Uh, tear is still there, but I'm able to shoot a bow, you know, every day now. That is mind uh, over matter. Yeah. Um, Oh, there was a doctor that uh, was uh, really big into that, but I can't recall his name. He won the, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize twice with this, his uh, evolution in healing and stuff like that. One of his biggest sets, I think it's Linus Paul, Dr. Linus Paul, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. He, he figured out if you leave, if you're allowed to keep, you're able to keep your body at a, a baseline of not natural instead of being acidic or too, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Be becoming 
Uh, well, it basically it's, it's like the, uh, what's the word? It's like the pH balance in your body, making sure you don't say toxic. You're able to say, keep an, a balance uh, pH level. And if you're able to do oh, that, sure. you're able to basically stem off most sicknesses by maintaining that. And uh, there's a bunch like Kerrigan water softener system. You can, you, it, uh, um, purifies the water but the only downside is it still doesn't take out the the fluoride that's being pumped into the the system so that's the only downside you can't really get rid of it but uh, there's ways to you, you work around you know i grew up with you you probably grew up on well water so it's probably it's far safer than drinking city water <laughs> it's true yeah like all all the memes that you see i, I don't get sick very often now knock on wood you know but uh you know i i just don't i it's thirsty. You, know, you grab the hose, turn it on, get a drink. You're good. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, the joys of being out there. We had a well too, and it's like you just walk right out in the middle center of the yard. There, you lift up the handle, the water just came out, and just we'd rig up uh, hose and stuff like that, and go from there. So it, it's it was it's a it's a different uh, experience than what some people don't get to have, especially if you live in town and city all your life. But it's a it's, it's a different tasting water, but uh, it's definitely will give you more minerals than than uh, you would expect. If you from a normal yeah. tap from inside the city, yeah, you take it for granted growing up. You know, you just uh, it tastes funky. It's got that sulfur base to it, and but I tell you what, it it was good. It was clean. It was cold. We uh, just the the Minnesota DNR just came out with the release, and they're they're, they're actually banning like twenty three lakes around the Saint Croix River because of three M and their and their chemical byproducts that were produced. It toxified a bunch of the groundwater, and they, it, there's some there's several bodies of water that you cannot eat the fish out of because it's so toxic. And the worst really? part is, yeah, the worst part is just north of me, and it's like it won't take much to get in the Mississippi and watch all that die. It's like we're at a point in time where we really need to focus on how to fix cleaner water instead of trying to manipulate the society in, in different aspects because we need to really focus on the earth because if we're not careful we'll turn into a uh, a netflix short there was there's a show called uh, love death and robots and in the first season there's this group of robots they're taking a guided tour of the earth and it was um destroyed because of poisoning the water essentially uh, and po poisoning the and, easy and, to do yeah, so it's like with all the nuclear waste that we have from Fukushima. But I did find out, though, that with Chernobyl, the way they did to remove a lot of that radiation is hemp. Hemp sucked that right out of the air, out of the ground and stuff like that. It, just it was, growing it? Yeah, just growing it. And it, it started, wow. they, it I think it was like 1994 or something like that. They planted them. And then they, over the years, they kept on harvesting of that and found that it's all cleared. Now it's like they have a, I think they did, HBO did a documentary because what they did is they actually built up a dome to go over the reactor and stuff because it's like, it's still, it's still radioactive, obviously, but they just basically domed it to keep all that radiation from continually radiating out. Okay. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's it's if you go on HBO, I don't know if it's still on there, but it, if you have the HBO Now app or whatever, it's on there. Or you can go like on YouTube; it's from there. But that, that's a a really unique way of being able to remove that toxicity from the soil and the area and stuff like that. Because when that happened in 80s, 86, right when Chernobyl, I think it was eighty six. Yeah, yeah, it it really rocked that uh, that Central Europe right there, offsetting everything and changing everything out. You know, it's like that's the. Uh, ego of man if we're not careful we can destroy everything around us yeah yeah so we're kind of running running with the roundup ready 
and everything with the with those um, GMO products that we eat with them, soybeans and and corn and stuff like that. Factory farming is is been a big uh, hindrance to wildlife, you know, because it's like it takes to grow one product, you pretty much kill everything around it. Yeah, which is yeah. not the way we should be doing it, you know. And it's like for those we're able to. Do you have a garden by chance, or your does your soil not allow I, it? No, no, I, I had a garden for for many years, and then I just got to the point where keeping up after that with everything else that I'm doing. Um, but I still have the boxes in the back and uh, about the only thing I've got growing right now is a lime tree. You know, it's uh, that's back there. You are correct though. It takes a lot of discipline to maintain that when my uncle was still alive back in the nineties, like went during the springtime in the fall, when we, my brother and I would go up there, he would be out there sun up and out there tilling the garden, cleaning everything up. And that was a great retirement relaxation thing for him to do. It kept him limber and kept him outside and kept him going. But he was an old World War One vet, so he always needed to keep himself moving. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is. It's good to keep moving. And you can get out there early. You're not making a ton of noise. Uh, but, yeah, it's just uh, keeping it. You have to be very disciplined. Uh, first three years I did it, I did it with my daughter. And, and we grew a bunch of stuff. But everything seemed to kind of hit at the same time. So we had an influx of vegetables for a month and a half and then nothing. Uh, so I was trying to plan that out and everything, but it, it's nice having a garden. It really is. Mm-hmm. My wife, I'd like to have a garden, but where we live at, it's a, and in Sparta area, it's uh, very Sandy. And the, since we don't live, we don't, we don't own where we live at, or we don't have, we don't have any say in what goes in the soil. It's, it's virtually impossible to grow. So we just kind of like, well, that's all right. We'll just, we'll just go from there. Luckily I have some friends down in Iowa that uh, grow food all the time. I mean, this year, the pears that we received from Southern Iowa were as big as my fist. They were just absolutely massive, delicious, juicy. And the thing is, is like him and I would talk and we'd ask like, what would eat all of these pears? Because it's like the, it's, two trees, three trees, and they had produced, they're, they're, they're fully, they're mature trees. So they're producing they're between hundred to 150 pairs per tree. And so it's like seeing where all these disappear. It's like, he, it baffles him because it's like, he lives probably, oh, about a thousand yards from the nearest wood line. So it's like, what is getting up in there and eating them? I think it's just obviously just going to be the birds that are getting after it because it's, uh, they're always gone. Like you can't, you, you can't, it's like, you have to get them when they're, when they're right there. Otherwise it's like, you'll miss your opportunity to, to, uh, to get, eat some. And he gave he gave us some earlier this year and they turn out just absolutely delicious pears. It's just fantastic. Now I want to talk about reloading. What made you pull the trigger to get into reloading? A couple different things. Uh, you know, fortunately, I like I, I've, I was blessed when I was younger. Uh, my dad taught my brother and I how to reload. And of course, you know, we were younger, you know, nine, 10 years old, but he made sure that we knew how to be around uh, gunpowder primers, how to, you know, be respectful of the equipment, but also, you know, actually loading our rounds to go woodchuck hunting. And we used to go just drive the countryside and help out the farmers and just pop off woodchucks and and help them out. So I got into that for a few years with my dad and then went to college, you know, after, you know, got older, went to college and I I pretty much stopped doing it and then uh, moved to California. And a couple of my coworkers and I uh, would go to the range all the time. And I was, you know, buying ammo, didn't have an issue with it. And then 
I'm trying to remember. I think it was three or four years ago. It was longer than that, but that's when it, the law took went into into play. But uh, California doesn't allow, you know, hunting with lead ammo anymore. Cop, copper only. Well, I saw that coming five, six years ago and said, you know what? That ammo is going to be really expensive. It's going to be pricey and it's going to be hard to find because we've got a lot of hunters out here. So I started, uh, I decided I was going to uh, build a 300 win mag. And, you know, back then ammo wasn't that pricey, but it was pricey enough. I mean, it's a big load. And, uh, but then trying to find all the components to, to put in, uh, and to, to verify, uh, that you had the, the right charge with the right green bullet and to make sure that you were accurate. And so I did that. And one of my, uh, one of my good friends has been reloading for 20 years. And he basically took me under his wing and he's like, I know you've done it before, but let's start from scratch and get a notebook and start taking notes. And we went through and he helped me develop my first load data for the 300 wind mag. And then I got hooked. I just love the process. I love the process of tinkering with it, fine tuning it, watching groups go from, you know, softball size to the size of a nickel. And it's, it's shocking to see sometimes, you know, to, to realize that you can, if you take the time with it, you can uh, fine tune it that, that well. And then uh, of course, with the whole California, you know, uh, building your own rifles, ghost guns and everything. Yeah. I built my own AR 15. Um, and it, you know, got a hundred percent legal California compliant, but well, now I need ammo. And while there's a lot of two, two, three ammo, you know, I was like, well, let me start reloading that. And my friend, Bill, uh, who will be going to shot show with me again, uh, this year, uh, helped me with that. And then I, I just, I progressed. I got to, uh, I had, you know, dies that, that, rifle that I used when I was woodchuck hunting with my dad, he had two rifles. He had a 22, 250 and a 222. And my brother has the 22, 250 and I have the 222. The 222, I haven't touched the scope on that probably in 30 years. And it's still accurate, dead on accurate. Uh, and I love it, but I don't shoot it as much. I shoot the higher caliber stuff. So I wanted to get into, I knew ammo was going to be pricey. And I knew that I could, uh, you know, I, I could build the exact, you know, bullet using the right projectile that I wanted to use to make my, my firearm as accurate as possible. And we went to shot, shot show, I believe, I think it was the first year we went, which was probably four years ago, four or five years ago. And one of the things that we realized is that a lot of people, there are a lot of reloaders in Nevada, but a lot of them, I mean, it's free state. You, you can just buy ammo over the counter and, and shoot. Well, they don't reload. They don't pick up their brass at, at the 
at the ranges either. We went and asked them, you know, can we pick up brass? And they were like, knock yourself out. And we came back with 10, five gallon buckets full of brass. <laughs> uh, but it gave us a project and we cleaned a lot of it up. Some of it we recycled, but we, we were able to use a bunch of it for our testing purposes and, and just to see what, you know, what worked well in, in different firearms. And I, and I, and I got into it. I, I have a, um, my uncle, uh, when he passed away, left me his 270 rifle and he loved that rifle. And he was a very, we joke about him uh, all the time. He's a very, we call him the lucky hunter, the lucky fisherman. He had, he just had really good luck shining on him. Well, when I got his 270, uh, it's by far one of the most accurate rifles I've ever used. So I worked for months coming up with the right copper projectile and the right powder load for it and spent a lot of time going to the range. Now, I, I reloaded the part of the reason I reloaded a lot was you don't, the range is out here are at least 45 minutes to an hour from me. They're very full a lot of the time and you can't really test as well as you want to because you got to wait for everybody. So my friend Bill, you know, had us, we'd go out to the, the desert and we'd spend four or five hours out there just shooting and recording data and getting everything the way, you know, he, he would shoot his stuff and, and I would focus on that 270. And that worked out really well. And I, th I thought I was done reloading a lot for a while. And I had uh, a gentleman online just post something online where he had an old 308 barrel basically a whole rifle that he had purchased took it apart and left it on the floor of his garage for 10 years now if anybody owns a garage or has a garage and and knows that concrete you know has a lot of moisture metal doesn't work well with moisture so this guy wanted to sell everything and he sold it for a ridiculously low price and i messaged him right away i said i'll take it you know it'll be a good project and he's like well, i don't know if it works and i said i'll get it to work you know uh, when am i and it was a 308 so i thought <laughs> okay why not buy some more reloading dies and 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 test it out and it was right about this time that the military was going switching from the 308 as the sniper rifle to the 300 wind mag. And we kind of joked about it at work that, uh, well, now you're going to have to reload both, you know, for, for long range shooting and, and playing around. And I said, Oh, let me, let me focus on this 308. So I did a video series and you can see it. I'm, you know, I did some posts on my blog and it's on my YouTube channel. Uh, I took the rifle apart. Actually it was already apart, uh, but I stripped the rust off of it, cleaned it up got new components for it and Cerakoted a lot of it and took it out. And now I've got a fantastic shooting bolt action 308 and not one to be sitting around and being idle. I decided, you know, what, what if I want a semi-automatic? 
And, and so I said, you know, geez, should I, should I build an AR-10? And I started, I think it was two years, yeah, it was SHOT Show um, 2020. I talked to a few of the companies there, you know, some contacts that I had. And I said, I'm, I'm interested in, in building an AR-10 chambered in 308. I said, I, and here's the reason. I want to, I want to be able to hunt with it, but I want to be able to shoot long range with it too. And if you know a lot of precision rifle shooters, you know, a semi-automatic is really not something that is recommended. I mean, mostly bolt action. And I've, I grew up on bolt action rifles, but I wanted something different. I wanted to see can I build something, especially for pig hunting? That's really what I wanted to build it for. Uh, you know, we texted a little bit today about, you know, pigs and everything like that. Out here, uh, central coast and up, I mean, there's some even close to me, but you can't hunt with a rifle. Um, but if you go to the central coast of California and up north, I mean, there's pigs everywhere. And I didn't want to have to rack around and, and shoot. Um, I wanted to be able to, if I have three tags, I want to fill three tags as fast as possible. So I thought, boy, if I have a semi-automatic in 308, that'd be pretty cool. Boy, hell, let me, let me see what it'll cost. And, and I, I'm, I'm the type of person that I think the, the 300 Win Mag, when I, I originally bought it and then I just replaced a whole bunch of parts on it and everything. I didn't build it. I, I took a bunch of parts off of it replaced parts to make it what I wanted it to be with the AR 10. I wanted that to be something that I built. Uh, the only thing I needed to, to, you know, purchase to go through an FFL was my, my lower. And once I did that, I, I worked with a bunch of companies, uh, Aero precision being one of them. And they were just, the knowledge base that these companies have, they're willing to share. They, they, even if you don't use their products, you know, here's what would be good. And uh, I'm gonna, let me backtrack a little bit. The, part of the reason that I uh, got into the AR-10, I, I joked about it with my, my friends at SHOT Show. And I happened to win a silent auction for a fax and firearms match barrel and uh, a BCG, a bolt carrier group. And I told him, well, looks like I have to build it now. <laughs> I, want, I want these parts. Uh, you know, if anybody knows facts and firearms, it's quality materials and quality parts. So I started making a list of everything I wanted on this rifle. And I wanted to have everything recorded with me putting it together, everything that I was doing to it, why I was doing things to it. And it took me, I think a year and a half to get all the parts just because parts were hard to come by. Lowers, fortunately I was able to get a lower early on, but just getting parts was, was difficult. And I got everything built, recorded the videos, figured I was gonna need to start reloading. Uh, so I got all the videos prepped for YouTube and YouTube changed their rules about teaching people how to build firearms. 
So I've got them and I'll probably put them somewhere. Uh, but right now they're, they're sitting on my computer, but that didn't stop me. I mean, I knew I was going to need to, to reload for 308 or hand load for 308. Uh, I'm not one to just go buy a box of ammo anymore. Uh, if I absolutely need to, you know, I'll, I'll buy some for, uh, you know, planking if I, if I absolutely have to, but for the most part, uh, the pictures you saw, anybody saw on Instagram the last couple weeks, I spent a lot of time with load data and, uh, updated projectiles for that, specifically for that AR-10 and wanting to take that, break it in, break that barrel in, put a, you know, a couple hundred rounds through it, and then start focusing on powder charge, brass, uh, you know, projectile, everything. And that's where I'm at now. Um, but I, I, I find reloading therapeutic, uh, not in a sick, twisted sense, just it's just that process of going through it. I mean, it, there's a very, there's, there's a lot more steps than, than I thought. And even as of last night, I, I wanted to, to learn a little bit more about some precision rifle shooting. And I learned a little bit more about, you know, what you can do if you really want to get nitpicky and I'm not quite there yet, <laughs> but, but it, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's very cool. So then what goes into load data? What are all the key aspects on it? So that when you're making a spreadsheet like that, what are, what, are, what should a guy see in all this? What are all the, the information they need? So this way they're, they're filing it out properly. Well, I don't know if I'll get everything correct here from this feeble brain of mine, but you know, first thing is go with a, a manufacturer and I'm just going to throw a Hornaday out there. Uh, because I started using their manuals years ago, but they're going to give you a, a starting point, uh, you know, a minimum, you know, where you should start with powder for a particular projectile and a max load. And the, the one key thing I would tell people is, you know, those guys that test and, and write those manuals know what they're doing. Do not, go to an online forum and take somebody's word for it of what the powder charge should be or case length or anything, because you're, you're putting your life in your hands there. So I, I go with, with the manual, but going back to um, my good friend, Bill, uh, if you can find somebody that's been reloading for a while, learn from them, you know, basically become their apprentice. If you want to learn how to, to do something, follow what they do. You can always, you know, change things up later on when you do it for yourself, but learn how, you know, the proper way to do it. I sat with Bill the first time in his garage when we were reloading and he said, you know, how many steps do you think there are? And I started naming off things and I, I think I got to six steps and he goes, yeah, double that. And we went into things that I totally forgot about from 30 years ago and it was like, okay. He said, that's why you need a, you know, a notebook and you need to keep track of your load data and every little component that you use so that when you do find that perfect round, 
you've got everything recorded. So what, what do you write down then? So this way then you keep track of everything. Can you give us a breakdown of that? Sure. So on, um, so like for the 308s that I'm, I'm loading now, uh, I have uh, a sticker that I've customized, a, a label that I print out that has all the data for what is in that cartridge. So I will have on there uh, the case, you know, whether it's, you know, I'll use Lapua because that's some of the brass that I've been using. It's a Lapua case. The primer is, you know, a Winchester large rifle primer. It'll have whether the, uh, I'll try to go from top to bottom on the, on the label. So it's, it's easier to understand. It'll have the, uh, the projectile that I'm using. Right now I'm using 168 grain hollow point boat tail from uh, Sierra. It's a Sierra Match King uh, projectile. So I'll write that on there. I write down the powder charge. So I always start at the low end. So let's say it's, you know, 39 and a half grains. Well, that first load is going to be 39 and a half grains. Then, uh, and I can go into the nuances in a minute, but on that label, I'll put that. I will put uh, whether or not the neck has been trimmed or not. Uh, it has, you know, the resized, trimmed, and then you want to put uh, your, it'll say C-O-A-L. It's your case overall length. And then it'll also have your, um, and you can put on, you know, on there what the case overall length is. And then you'll have your, basically your entire projectiles overall length. Or C-O-A-L, excuse me, it's cartridge overall length. And so for that particular one, it's 2.81 inches. Now I have, I have calipers that measure everything and I'm pretty anal about it because you want to make sure that it's repeatable. Now there is some fluctuation you're going to find within, you know, a couple thousands from time to time, but you can record that. That'll go on that label. And I also put on there, whether it's been loaded once, twice, three times, the, the case, if it's been loaded once, twice, three times, because usually with, with rifles, uh, bolt action rifles, you can load a lot. Uh, you can, you can reload them you know, 10, 12 times sometimes. Semi-automatics, five or six, uh, with before the neck starts to crack, just from use. So I inspect every single case, even those ones that I picked up in Vegas, 10 buckets. I mean, I, it wasn't just 10 buckets for me. There were three of us that were collecting brass, but when you're going through it, we cleaned up all the brass and everything. And then we inspected each and every one of them. And there was a lot that got thrown out because they were just destroyed and you know, there was no point in, in using it. And then I, we record all that on there. And then sometimes I'll, I'll take notes. So I'll put it, all of that stuff will go into my book. And I'll put in there, you know, for this rifle, I'm doing, I think I've got five or six different loads with the same projectile, two different cases, and two different powders. And so I'll record it all, and then I'll have a different target set up for each one of those loads so I can see how my grouping is on, on each one of those. 
there's a lot more that you can do with it uh, as far as, you know, you can tinker a lot with your, your projectile seating depth and getting it so that your, your groups are, you know, much tighter. Uh, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm learning about it. I think it's very cool. It's, it's a very interesting topic and it's worth it if you have the time to, to spend on it. But with me, as long as I can get to where I can take down a pig at, you know, a few hundred yards, I'm happy. Now you mentioned uh, the neck, like shaving it down. Like what do you measure that are, what you consider safe and what is unsafe? Cause I'm not familiar with that. So can you explain that to me? Sure. Basically your chamber and your rifle, you know, where, where the case meets. Um, and I'm going to give up the terminology all screwed up here, but especially with a semi-automatic, you know, the military rifles and everything, they, it was a lot of tolerance. So a case, I mean, when you fire your rifle, that brass expands just from the intense heat. And if there's a, a, a lot of tolerance, especially with some of the military rifles, that brass will stretch. Well, if you try to take that brass that's been shot out of a semi-automatic and try to use and just reload it without trimming the neck down and you can load it, but it may not fit in that bolt action rifle because a bolt action rifle usually has tighter tolerances and you want to make sure that it fits so that you get a guideline of what the case length should be. And so let's say, for example, you know, uh, a case length is, um, oh, I don't know. Let's say it's two inches. We'll just use two inches, make it easy. So your case is two inches. So you know that they say to trim it down to two inches. Well, if you've got a, a case that's 1.99 or one point you know, nine, five, you're going to be fine. If it's a little bit less, you're fine a little bit. And, there, and there's a certain tolerance range there as well. But if you've got a 2.2 inch or 2.1 inch case and you need to have it down to two, well, you need to trim it down. You need to trim that excess brass off so that it's consistent. You want to have consistent length brass so that your projectile seats in it properly. It's, it's all consistent along the way. And that's, that's what you would do. So I do have a case trimmer that sometimes, I mean, and what I'll do is I, I've got a case trimmer that I've set up so that with my 308, I can just pop the case on there. I don't, I measure, I don't know, one out of every 25 to 50, you know, just to, to mess around, but I, I got it set so that all I have to do is set it up and I get it to where I need it to, to trim down to. And then I just go through one after the other and trim it if it needs to be trimmed. And you'll see on, on some of them, the thing will just spin and it won't even, you know, do anything. Well, then you don't have to worry about it. It's, it's short, it's short enough, but you'll see somewhere it's just spiraling off brass because it's, you know, had a, a, a chain went, got fired off in the chamber that had a lot of tolerance. And I learned that, you know, just going through the brass from the range. Uh, amazing how many 
different rifle manufacturers that the specs are just slightly different. So that's why you have to be, you know, as precise as you can be for those, you know, rifles or handguns that, that you shoot, or, I mean, you can reload shotgun ammo if you want to, but I'm not, I won't do that. <laughs> it's, I like, I like tinkering with brass and, and copper. So what, so you said you, you trim the brass down to meet the tolerance. Now, what does it, does it sand it down? Does it cut it down? It cuts it down. There's, I've got a, um, a trimmer, a case trimmer that has uh, it goes inside the neck and there's a little edge that just, it just spins around and it'll spiral off until it gets to, basically it has a stopping point. And once it gets to that point, it'll spin, but it won't cut anymore. And then, you know, you're done. And then you just take it off and, and it still, it might have a little bit of, you know, funk on the edges. So you do have a, a, a tool that'll help clean the inside and the outside. Uh, I've got one that I use by hand just because, like I said, it's therapeutic. I can go through by hand, uh, but they do have some uh, RCBS has a, a great one that I've seen used that has all the different little tools on it that you need that are just spinning. And you just go through one by one by one and, and take care of you know what you need to take care of. I just take my time because I want everything to be as, as perfect as I can make it for me. Then uh, when you're writing out the data sheet, the, uh, what are all the key aspects do you write down? So this way, then if you were to hand this to me, I can, I would know what each, each one means. Well, beside the, the load data that goes on the label, the some of the key components are you know when i go to the range uh, i'll have the the load data and i'll have okay i'll check what the barometric pressure is what the temperature is what the wind is and i record all that uh, especially temperature and pressure because i you know i found out uh, i was talking to a gunsmith a couple of years ago about my 270 load data and i was telling him, you know, I'm accurate to 300 yards with it. It's the best shooting rifle I've had. I said, I'm taking it to New York to hunt whitetails. And he said, be careful. You're going to have, you know, it's going to drop a lot faster than you think. And we went through and he walked me through the data with the temperature change and the, the elevation change. That's the other thing is you can you know, record your elevation because your rifle will could act, you know, fire a, a little bit different at different elevations. And just so you know, some of that data you may not even care about. Uh, I know that uh, if I were to take a guess, when my dad was, you know, hunting woodchucks and loading his rifle to, to go deer hunting, he didn't care about pressure and temperature. It was just, can I put this you know, inside a quarter at 100 and 200 yards. And that's, that's all you needed it for me. Well, I'm a little bit more picky. I want to get my projectiles touching if I can, you know, and, and try to make it, it, it work that project and that process through to get as the best I can out of that rifle. So I'll record all of that. Um, once in a while, when, usually when I'm done, 
I haven't done this uh, recently. Uh, I haven't been to the range recently, but uh, powder burn off. Uh, sometimes you can tell uh, I've, I've used a handful of different powders over the last five years, and some of them burn a lot cleaner than others. And what I mean by that is, I mean, some cases come out looking really, really good with just a little bit of powder at the end, and some are just covered in powder and just they're filthy. Um, you know, but sometimes that filthy powder might give you the best, the most accurate round at, you know, 200 yards. So there's give and take, you know, how often do you want to have to clean your rifle? Personally, I don't care. I'll, I'll clean my rifle as many times as I want and as I need to, if my, you know, load data is on and, and I'm accurate. That is uh, something to really consider about. You know, I don't wouldn't really think about that from, uh, from if I were to go from Wisconsin to go down to Texas about the elevation drop. So when what also so with the, the powder, so when you're when you're building a load, when you're building a load, how many rounds do you build of one particular loadout before you move on to the next loadout? So this way then you're keeping your data consistent. I usually load 10 rounds. Uh, when I first started, uh, you know, Bill and I talked at length about how many we thought that I should build and, and how many I should, because you got to remember, I mean, if I shoot three rounds out of it and all of them are touching, I'm not going to shoot the other seven. So I've got to just, you know, but if I shoot, let, let's say I shoot five different loads, you know, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. And I've got, you know, all of those. And then say my 40 and 41, I have, you know, pretty accurate results. And the 41 is the, the one that I, or the, the, you know, let's say the 41 is the one I decide to go with. Well, everything else now I have to dismantle, take the, pull the projectile out, empty the powder out. That's why I record everything because now I'm going to make sure I load all of that brass the exact same way with the same powder charge, same projectile, same seating depth, everything. Because I know that that's what my rifle likes. And it's, I mean, that 270 was a good learning experience for me because I loaded 10 rounds because sometimes you'll get, we everybody calls a flyer. You know, you'll shoot, there'll be a gust of wind at, you know, 200 yards, 100 yards, and your your bullet will hit eight inches right or five inches left. And you go, oh, what did I do wrong? It's not that you necessarily did anything wrong. It, it could be you, but that's why I load 10 rounds. And I try to shoot five. In the bottom of my ammo can, I probably have a bunch of bags that have four or five rounds still left in them which is fine, but I have all the targets and everything as well. And I just haven't gotten around to, to pulling everything, but I load 10. And then, uh, I know that I have enough. And I, if I want to shoot them, I can, or if I have a friend with me at the range and I want to see if it, it's working as well with them, they might shoot it as well. But more than likely I come back with, a lot more ammo than, than is expected. Uh, 
we, we joke about when we go to the range, um, the guys out there will shoot 200 to 500 rounds, no problem. And I might shoot, I might shoot 20 to 50, uh, because I'm picky. I don't, I don't like to waste ammo, but for me, just blasting, you know, you know, out here, we can only have a 10 round magazine anyway. So I've got, you know, if I've got 10, 10 round magazines loaded and I'm just blasting at tree stumps, I get nothing out of it for me. I like to be able to, to take a, you know, put a golf ball out at a hundred yards and knock it off a tee. Uh, I'm, that's my thrill. So I want to, I will take my time. And, and the other thing too, that, that uh, I didn't mention, but I don't record it. I don't necessarily know how you would, but uh, letting your barrel cool off when you're testing rounds. I wait anywhere from, usually it's about five minutes in between each shot before I shoot another round. Because once your barrel heats up, if you continually shoot, your results will, will change. Uh, that first shot, you know, that cold, cold barrel shot, while it might be good, I don't necessarily focus on that with everything that I've got. Because if you're testing a bunch of rounds at the range, you've only got one cold barrel shot. So this year I actually uh, picked up a, um, a rifle cool from uh, Magneto Speed. Yeah, you actually, it's got a fan on it and everything. You just plug it right into your chamber, you know, drop the bolt out or back and put it in there and let it cool off the barrel as best you can. I mean, it's still going to be hot. It's not going to be perfect, but you can be consistent with your timing as far as, uh, you know, the amount of time you let it cool off. It's not a perfect science out here. You know, we, when we go shoot, we go shoot in the desert in the morning. It could be, we've been out there before where it's 25 degrees to start off. And then it's 70 degrees to 80 degrees by the time we leave. So there's a huge fluctuation. So in between, you know, the rounds, you know, if I've got, a powder charge of 39 that I'm starting with at 25 degrees. Well, I record that it was 25 degrees at 7 a.m. Here's the pressure. And then my last load, let's say, is at 10 o'clock and it's 75. Well, it's it's a it's a big change. And if my first, my 39 grain powder charge was my best powder charge when it was 25 degrees. Well, then I, I need to shoot that again when it's 75, 80 degrees out and make sure that it's still functioning the way that I want to in, in those different temperatures. The only rifle I've got right now that I know for a fact works well like that is my 300 Win Mac. But I haven't spent weeks testing it at the range and, and loading different rounds for it either to make sure that it works in all different sorts of temperatures and pressures. I mean, you could, it's, it's a rabbit hole. You get going down it. That's if you have one rifle and you want to focus on that, it's perfect. Um, I reload for, for what did I say? I think it's six rifles. Yeah. I've got eight. Well, I, I reload for a 44 Magnum and 10 millimeter 
pistol rounds as well. So I've got six rifles I reload for and and two uh, handguns. Well, the 44 mag is my lever action, but I could, you know, it's handgun and 44 mag ammunition. But I mean, there's different things with, with that too. Like you don't have to size, you know, if you're shooting a 44 mag revolver, you know, it's open at the end inside that chamber. You don't have to resize the brass. You clean it. I mean, you resize, you don't have to trim it. You can res you have to resize it, but you don't have to trim it. And you can just keep shooting and shooting and shooting. Now it's going to thin out after time if you continually shooting the same brass, but that's why you, you check it. So when you check the, the tolerances on the side, then what is the, the, uh, safe tolerance of the sides of the brass this way that it, it doesn't lead lead into a failure no idea oh really you got, okay you, you've got to check you know each thing i mean there really isn't as far as i'm aware i mean there, I, I'm, I know that there are people that check for little nuances with their brass i'm mainly looking at for cracks or you know, um, something didn't eject properly. Why? Um, you know, I'm looking more at, especially if I'm shooting a semi-automatic bolt action. You, I mean, everything is pretty much in that enclosed chamber. That projectile, if you're shooting a semi-automatic, it's, you know, as soon as you fire it, it's cycling that other one right through. Bolt action, it's, by the time you get to it and eject that shell, it's it's takes more time than that semi-automatic. So that's already started to cool down in that barrel. Not much, but enough where it's not, you know, it's it's retaining that shape. So there's going to be less resizing. Um, I mean, it still needs to be resized, but it's going to be less wear and tear on that cartridge, that case versus out of a semi-automatic at least that's from my experience and everything that i say should be taken with a grain of salt you know it's i'm still learning uh, no matter what i do even any type of hunting no matter what seminar i give i tell people i'm still learning i learn something new every day i try to learn something new every day especially when it comes to reloading or hunting i want i want to better myself and last night was a good example about you know projectile seating depth and and getting everything set properly so that you can be more you know be more accurate most of the time so it's it's a learning experience you have to be patient and you have to take your time uh you don't want to miss a step and and you don't want to be doing, you don't want to be reloading and doing something else at the same time. If you're going to be reloading, focus on that. You know, some days I'll just go out and I'll prep brass. I'm not going to go from start to finish. I mean, it's a process. You got to, you know, clean your brass, you, get, you resize your brass, you throw it in a tumbler, you trim it. I mean, all the different steps. There's some days I'll go out and I'll just, trim the brass, trim the primer pockets and put in a new primer. And then I just let it sit. I mean, I've got brass that's been sitting out there for years sealed up. Uh, that's another key component that 
I haven't mentioned, but you know, my brass sits in my garage, but once I'm done prepping it, it goes in plastic bags. I don't want the moisture getting to it, even though we're in a dry climate out here. Um, if you think about it, you know, where you are when you get snow, you know, even my, my gun safe has a dehumidifier in it. Do I really need it? Not as much as when I lived in New York, probably, but it, it sure does help. It keeps that rust off of, you know, the barrels and, and you don't want your ammo corroding. Uh, that'll, that'll also weaken the brass. Uh, if you get too much moisture, I've got some, uh, 222 uh, loaded ammo that uh, that my dad gave me that I'm glad that he gave me because it's, it's something I can use when I when I'm teaching people about what I've learned is it when when I got it we were looking through it the necks are cracked and the only reason that we know that the necks are cracked and that and why it happened is they were stored in this basement basements have a lot of moisture you know and the ammo that was kept in his uh cases and and plastic bags and everything just fine shiny and everything this has you know you can tell it's got moisture spots on the brass and they, they cracked for me i'm glad that i saw that uh, it's it's a learning experience you know, I know not to leave my brass or my, my loaded ammo out where the elements can get at it. Uh, unless you're going to be shooting it, you know, right away. You know, I've hunted in the rain with my rifle before and I still will. And I will still dry everything off when I come back in. But you have to take care of your stuff. And, and that goes for your ammunition, too. You mentioned you, you, you learned something last night about. Uh, the, the setting of the neck. Uh, could you explain that lesson to me? Like what you learned? Cause it's like, I still want to, I'm kind of curious, like the depth of the projectile in the neck to, to provide that optimal shot. I'll go over it briefly, but I will recommend going to uh, Eric, go to YouTube and look up Eric Cortina, uh, precision rifle shooter, shoots F class. Uh, very personable in his videos and very likable. And I mean, the first video I saw last night of his, I had heard his name mentioned a few times and it said, you know, check out his stuff. Okay. I'll get around to it. Last night I said, you know what? I lit up a cigar and I sat down and I watched an hour and a half of his videos and I learned something from every single one of them. And basically the, the first one that he was talking about was uh, what's called chasing the lands and the lands being the rifling in your barrel. Now, there was somebody else that was doing a, a video beforehand, and they said, you know, go check out Eric's video on this and why you shouldn't chase the lands, why you'll drive yourself crazy. Basically, what it is is when the, the case gets to, you know, it's, its furthest point, when you, it, let, let's say, for example, and, and I'm going to kind of probably butcher this, but this is the Cliff Notes version. If you don't see that, projectile just right once it gets to a certain point you know it's that 2.81 inch cartridge overall length that i have for my 308 if i had not seated that projectile 
to that depth and I left it out. And so say it was 2.85 or 2.86, that might be too long, more than likely it would be. And it would catch in the barrel. It would catch in that rifling. So when I go to eject that shell, if I don't have that um, projectile crimped in properly, that bullet's going to stay there and then I'm going to get powder and everything all over my rifle. But that's basically his, his description. He talks about jump in the lands and jam. And this is all his stuff. This is what I learned last night. You know, basically jump and in the lands are good. Jam is not basically jam being that you don't want to have your projectile out too far and, and jam it into that rifling. You want to have it so that it either fits in there perfectly where you're in the lands or where it jumps, meaning that there's a little bit of a gap from the edge of that, the end of that case to the rifling. So that bullet can, can go through and there's, there's no issues. Definitely look at, watch his video on it. It's like, it's 25 minutes long, but it went very fast. He's, as far as I'm concerned, he's a great teacher. And, and I couldn't give a seminar as well as, as he does. I watched, it's a two-parter, so it was about 50 minutes. Maybe not that quite that long, maybe 35, 40 minutes altogether. Uh, because people still had questions about it. And, and there are people that will, what they call chase the lands. They want to get it perfect. But he, the, the point he was trying to make is you put a hundred rounds or 200 rounds through that barrel. It's that rifle barrel now changed because of the heat, because of the shooting, because of whatever factors, uh, how many rounds you put through it, the tolerance has now changed and it's going to be a few thousands, but, it has changed. And you could, if you try to go through that whole process again of getting that perfect seating depth, you're, you know, precision rifle shooters do it. They do it for a reason. I mean, they want to have groups that are tight. I'm not there yet. Uh, I thought it was very informative and I learned a lot, but when I'm shooting a pig or I'm shooting a deer, they don't care if I'm shooting within a, a dime at, you know, 200 yards. Uh, I just need to make sure that I'm accurate. So, but I do want to get to a certain degree of precision with this rifle. Uh, I don't expect to be in any competitions or anything with a semi-automatic rifle, but I want to be able to shoot out to a thousand yards with it. That's a good and goal. It, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's going to take me some time because I'm, I'm slow. I'm meticulous with it. I'm not, I don't get to the range every other week. Like I would like, uh, it'll probably take me a few years to get there, but I'm going to have fun doing it too. That is the dream right there to be able to get out the range more than once. I'm in the same boat. Like I, I have a couple of different places where I can go shoot. My next door neighbor asked him to, to invite me to go out shoot and stuff like that. And didn't matter where, but it's like, I want to shoot more frequently and I want to learn to stretch out because I'm pretty consistent at hundred yards. And, but I want to, test the limits of my rifles this way that I'm consistent because it's a 16 inch two, two, three or five, five, six NATO round. 
And I just want to be more and more proficient with this. So this way, then I can just feel confident this way. When somebody wants to ask me questions about it, I can be able to provide my input. I'm not going to be able to do as detailed as you are because I don't even have the entire setup, but that is a really a valuable point to look at all the steps you've gone into. Now, when you play around with the powder, like, do you follow a guy consistently or do you just start with the, the guy in the beginning and then start adding grains until you find your perfect shot? But I guess the question I'm trying to get to is when do you know your round is complete? Well, you don't have to longer have to tweak it. That's a good question. And that's kind of the same thing as with chasing the lands. Um, even, even more so you can drive yourself nuts uh, doing it, but that's why, you know, for example, I think the, the powder I'm using, um, I'm using a, a shooter's world powder. And I believe the starting charge is 39 and a half grains all the way up to 43 grains. 43 is the max load data. Now there are, there are guys that will load a little bit more than that. I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, not unless I've got, um, you know, guidance from somebody else and, and they've done it before, but I'm going to go, that's my range 39 and a half to 43. So when I first started loading this um, particular round, I said, well, 39 and a half, okay, 39 and a half. I'm going to go in one gram increments or one grain increments. I went 39 and a half, 40 and a half, 41 and a half, 42 and a half. And then I stopped at 40. I went up to 43. But let's 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 throw the 43 out for for right now. So let's say, you know, I've got the the one grain increments. I go to the range and I shoot those. 39 and a half is, you know, high left. Um, 40 and a half and 41 and a half are decent groups. And then the other ones are just all over the place. Well, I know that, okay, I'm going to start with the, the 40 and a half and the 41 and a half. Then I'll come back and I'll say, okay, now I'm going to load in half increments. So I'm going to go, you know, 40 and a half to um, 41. And then the, from the 41 and a half, I'll go to 42. And then I'll try to tighten that up as I go. Now, if... I had tons of brass and projectiles and an endless, you know, streaming bank account that I could get powder at will and primers at will. I would probably go, I would probably do different loads at a bunch of different charges. I would, I would go maybe even quarter grains and there will be guys that you guys and girls that you will see that do that and they do it very well. I mean, they will get to the, the precise uh, grain for that. I mean, and it's all, all of the components together between, you know, the case, the primer, uh, primers, you know, you got CCI primers, let's say CCI and Winchester primers. They fire slightly different. Um, it's, it's tough to, to pinpoint. Uh, I'm sure you can talk to somebody that can tell you exactly what it is, but they fire a little bit different. They, uh, the cases, 
they're they're made the metal alloys that that make them up are slightly different you know i have fortunately the the lapua brass that i have um uh, i made you know and we'll, we'll get into this with something you and i talked about you know with trading and stuff like that um bill um had a whole bunch of 45 um and nine mil he had nine millimeter brass that he wasn't using anymore and it was either recycle it or um or give it to me so i took it i mean we're talking thousands of cases i don't own a nine millimeter nor do i want to reload nine millimeter i mean i would i would rather go buy if i had a nine millimeter I'd rather go buy ammo it's just it's a small you know anybody that that knows nine millimeter it's a small uh round and it's just it's tedious let's put it that way loading pistol ammo is tedious to me um so i had all this nine millimeter brass and i happened to find a um a, a police uh, sniper that was in he was into precision rifle shooting and he just decided to get out of doing precision rifle shooting and wanted to do more handgun shooting and he was looking for nine millimeter brass and i said well hey let, let's talk and you know how much brass do you have how much you know what components do you have so we made a great trade i got a whole bunch of lapua brass and and sierra match king projectiles for a whole bunch of i mean i think i had ten thousand nine spent nine millimeter cases and i made out pretty well as far as i'm concerned uh having that you know the lapua brass works really well the sierra match kings work really well so the components i got were great um I realize I'm going off on a, a tangent here, but uh, that's the joys of podcasts. We can jump right back <laughs> into that spot. There's been like my guests, my listeners know that I will put my tinfoil hat on. I can go down the rabbit hole on a lot of different topics, but it's it's why I like podcasting or, or long form conversation because we can jump we can jump ship on anything and go back to it. Absolutely, absolutely, and I I mean it, it's it's just fun talking about stuff like this, and and knowing you know that you can you can play around and i think that that's what we're talking about. you know you could go in between these half these 20.25 grain increments and get to where you're you know putting three projectiles i mean you got quarter moa you know basically they're touching uh at a target at 100 200 300 yards whatever you want to do there's half inch moa you know it's it all depends on what you want for you. I mean, and I shoot for me. I don't shoot for anybody else. When I go to the range, you know, my friends and I will all joke, you know, hey, who can get the closest to the center of this or that? And we just have fun, you know, playing with each other. But I will sit there and take 15 minutes setting up to shoot one, you know, particular round. Now, I will say that one I'm learning different things as I go. And I was, you know, Kentucky windage was in our vocabulary growing up. I did not, when I was deer hunting, when I was deer hunting in New York, it was shotgun or bow. There was no rifle hunting where I was at. 
it wasn't until I left New York and moved to California that they legalized rifle hunting where I grew up. So I do go back and I rifle hunt, but some of the things that I really want to learn where I will probably take a course uh, in is, you know, dialing my scope for a particular situation based on, you know, range, temperature, wind, everything to be able to know my scope intimately that I can dial it um, very well. And there's a, there's another Eric Cortina video where he, he actually hired um, actually recently too, just hired a uh, special forces sniper as uh, you know, on his staff and they, they go shoot at the range and they, the way they talk about it, they're, they're having fun with each other, but the way they're talking, they're shooting at 500 yards and, and this guy, Jason describes exactly what he's doing and why. And I, the great thing about it is fortunately I've been shooting long enough that I know the terminology and I understood what he was saying, but it clicked. And, and I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Let, let's see if this, you know, works out. And sure enough, what he was doing, you know, made sense. And he was going over how he set up his scope. And I, I'm like, that's, that's, that's the part that I want to get to uh, this Kentucky windage. Yeah. It works great in hunting situations and I'll probably never stop doing that, but I would like to be able to dial my scope at a range and have somebody pick out a target. And I, I know, okay, this is exactly where I need to set my, my dials and, and be able to hit that target. That's going to be a, a cool feeling. Nice. So when you're testing your rounds, then what yardage are you doing? Are you doing a zero? Are you doing at a hundred or, or a, when you're, when you're like 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards, like what is the, the feel good round for you, the distance for you when you're testing out a, a load? hundred yards. Okay. Uh, I, I zero everything at a hundred. Uh, I got ribbed a couple years ago from a couple people that, that shoot recreational long range. Why aren't you zeroing that rifle at 200? Well, because if I zero it at a hundred, I know every step of the way exactly what it's going to be. If I zero it at two, the math changes. And I don't want that to change. I mean, it would be one rifle that the math is this way and my other five rifles are this, you know, this other way. I want them all to be the same. So I zero everything at 100. And why well, I, I say zero, I test everything at 100 so that I can see what my groupings are at 100 yards. And it's a good indicator of what they're going to do uh, you know, for that particular you know, charge and, and projectile. And sometimes it takes, it takes a long time. The reason I do it at hundred yards for many reasons. One, it's, it's easier to get faster to get to the target, to set up your targets and to get back to the the shooting bench. Um, There are uh, a lot of little things. When I shot the 270, I think I had five different case types, two primers, I think I had four different powders and you got to, if you, if you do all the math with that, you know, you're okay. Four different powders. Well, maybe there's five charges 
per each one. And then along with that, I had six different bullets that I was testing. So you can imagine how many different types of loads I had to do. And I didn't use them all. I mean, I might've shot, like I said, three out of one set, but I had to have all of them set up so that I could see how they were going to react. And I think I shot, I think when I got down to it, I didn't want to have too many um, because it, they were going to be copper projectiles that I was going to be hunting with. So I, th I think I got down to Nosler, cutting edge bullets. I'm trying to think what the third one was. Um, oh, it was the uh, the Hornady. Um, I believe it was the Hornady bullets. And all copper. So I figured, okay, these three, out of these three, something's going to work. And of course the Noslers work great. They just, uh, the, the, the rifle, when I got it from my, uh, from my uncle, you know, my dad told me this rifle loves federal ammunition straight out of the box works great. And immediately I thought, then I got to figure out what, you know, what load that is. Federal's not going to tell me. Federal's not going to tell me what their powder charge is or uh, the, you know, every speck of along the way. They're, you're going to have a, a good idea, but you're going to have to come up with that. What works for you? Now, what so is I have, a, oh, sorry to interrupt you, but I wanted to get asked this. So what is a charge? Is this coming charge, from? That's the powder charge. So that's is your, that the, the you Winchester, know, the CCI. Is that what you're referring no, to? That, that's, that's the primer. Okay. So the, the, the powder charge, when I say charge, is, is the amount of powder that you're putting in that uh, case. So that 39 and a half grains is the amount of powder that you're actually putting in that case. And uh, I think the picture I posted on Instagram, um, and, it, and it's not, it sounds like a lot going from 39 and a half to 40 and a half. I mean, it's one, you know, one grain difference. So the weight is very slight, but you'll see, um, you want to fill up that case as much as possible. You think about it, um, if that, if you have a case like this and you're filling it with powder and it's, you know, this high and your projectile comes down this far. So you've still got a little bit of a gap in there. Once you tilt that and you go, you go to shoot, all that powder is now resting down here and there's a little bit of an air gap at the top. It's for hunting situations, it really doesn't affect it that much. It, but I have had much better results having that case filled, if not filled as much as possible, having that projectile seated enough where it almost makes a donut around that projectile as it's, as it's seated in there. And then you just have a more consistent flight. That's just for me. It, that's what works for me. It's it's. I think it's more mental sometimes, but I know that consistently I can do that, and I know what my results are going to be at the range. Okay. So, what is the 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 ROI on the investment of setting getting every tool that you need to start reloading? Like, when do you start seeing a a plus sign? Because it's like, if you are if you were to go and buy a box of 308 right now off the shelf, what would that run you per round? And then after that, 
what is your RO, what is your cost per round of when you reload? I had those exact same thoughts when I did my 300 wind mag and then I stopped. I'll oh, okay. All right. ROI means jack squat, especially now nowadays. Reason, reason being is with my 300 wind mag, I knew it was going to be about a buck and a quarter around um, just because of the, the case itself is three, 3.2 inches. I don't know. It's it's been a minute since I've reloaded my my 300 wind mag, but the the I mean the projectile itself or the whole cartridge is is long, and it takes a lot of powder to send a third that 180 grain projectile you know a couple hundred yards, and you can go through a lot of powder and a lot of projectiles fast. But I was I was doing the 300 wind mag to test out. And then I got to the 270 where I wanted to test out. And then the pandemic hit. Yeah. Okay. And, and ammo went off the shelves like crazy. Well, you could look at ROI as if the ammo was still on the shelf, or you can look at it and say, I'm self-sufficient. That's, that's a better, better point of view. I like that point of view. It's, it's much easier for me to, well, and in California, you've got to fill out paperwork now to go buy ammo. Geez, they've I mean, already started their, their their registration. It's like next thing you know, they're going to ask them for a, a tattoo on your forearm. Pretty much. It's it's ridiculous. I haven't bought ammo since they started doing it. The uh, I find it ridiculous. Um, and, and I get challenged by, you know, by it because, you know, I was in the Vegas shooting. You know, I saw people die, you know. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a fine line. You know, I, I'm a Second Amendment supporter. And I mean, two weeks after it happened, I was at the rifle range. It's not going to affect me shooting, you know. And once the pandemic hit, I had so many people, you know, telling me oh, ammo is so expensive. Well, now you can't half the time you can't find it. Uh, we used to uh, I gave a seminar on comparing the the 270 Winchester to the 30-06. Virtually the same cartridge. But if you were to look in any sporting goods store, when you know, say you traveled from you know Wisconsin to uh, Alaska and your ammo didn't make it, well, you could pretty much find 30-06 on the shelf. 270, maybe, maybe not. But 30 out six was is probably the most common round for hunting in North America uh, that can knock down just about anything. I mean, you can use it for anything. So, thir- but 30 out six you could find. And then two years ago, you couldn't find it anymore. Yeah, it, it, it went scarce here, even here in Wisconsin. I mean, I, I met a guy in Medford, Wisconsin. And I wanted, I, I told the guys, like, I came up from Lacrosse and I wanted to get some. I saw you on TikTok, oddly enough, and I want to come check out your store. And he, did, it's like, all I have is a box of three out sixes, one run around missing, but I'll sell you the box. It's like sold because I can't find anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I think you could find on the shelf is 380 ammo, you know, 380 handgun ammo. And, I don't know a whole lot of people shooting 380. 
<laughs> not a lot. I know I have, I have my good friend. He's trying to off, uh, unload his uh, 380. He's been, he's, uh, he's been trying, he's been pushing me to buy cause it's a 1911 Browning. I just like that. The frame, it fits good in my hand. Cause I got big grips, but yeah, it's like, you're right. It's not a very common round. Not a very people use it as a uh, conceal and carry. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the other thing too, you know, you, you bring up a good point, you know, it, that kind of, segues into you know the th- we talk about the 380 and, and your friends trying to get rid of it on the flip side there's more manufacturers coming out with new rounds all the time uh just recently i think it was it uh i think it was federal that came out with the 30 uh i can't even think of the name of it uh, right now um ryan kleckner does a good review of it basically it's a it's a little bit less of a charge uh, than a nine millimeter. Uh, what is it? The 30 carry something carry. I forget. You'd have to look it up. Um, but Ryan just ripped it apart where Sean Utley did a review on it and it worked well. And, and I'm sure it works well, but how many how many more rounds are the manufacturers going to come out with when you can't even find ammo now for things that we've been using for decades. And I just find it personally find it kind of ridiculous. I mean, I remember when the the six, five Creedmoor craze hit, I mean, the the rifle had been in use for well over 10 years in, in the hunting community, just nobody talked about it. And then when it became really, really popular, I mean, I remember at SHOT Show, every bay had a 6.5 Creedmoor. And it's a great gun to shoot. <laughs> it's fun. Doesn't have much recoil at all. And it's insanely accurate. And I think it's what, 140 grain projectile. I mean, easy to reload. But then again, you got to buy all new dies for that particular round. I would rather, that's why with the, like with the AR-10, I could have built it in 6.5 Creedmoor or PRC or something like that, but I wanted to use a 308 because I already had the dies for it. I already had the cases for it. Why stray from the norm? You know, what, what I had. And so I've stuck with it. Now there, there are a lot of other rifles that are really tempting uh, to use, but I'm, I'm happy with what I have. There are people that like to get a new rifle every other year and tinker and, and reload and do hand loads for it. Go nuts, you know, learn all you can. Uh, me, um, I'm not that guy. Same boat. Me neither. I, it, it's my two to three was my first rifle. I actually ever bought brand new. Cause my 30 out six used paid 200 bucks for it. Got a uh, Vortex Crossfire 2 for it, sighted it in, and I love every minute of it. Now, just find the ammunition. Now, that would be the gun for me to motivate me to buying the setup to reload because it's just, just a savage. It's, it's a shorter barrel. It's lightweight. And I just want something that is going to where, they just, where, where the, the match makes sense, where I'm shooting that 100 to 200 just flat because I'm the same boat. I like to... Uh, zero everything at a hundred because then everything, like you said, the math is much easier. And when I'm out there looking at animal, I'm, I, I want to be able to do the quick math. I don't want to sit here and try to go backwards and try to calculate everything. I just want to make it smooth sailing for me. So this way I put on that, ec- that ethical shot, even though 90% of the time I shoot bow, 
Yeah, exactly. But and that's why we practice so much with our bows. But we're shooting, let's say, max range at forty yards on an animal. You know, there's a lot more distance you could shoot at with a rifle. Uh, I've only taken a couple deer with a rifle. Most most of my deer have been with a bow. But to be able to reach out and take one with an accurate firearm is you know is great as well. It just Every, everybody, every hunter is different. As long as we're all supporting each other, you know, you want to do it a certain way and I want to do it a certain way. Hey, as long as we're going out there and we're hunting, we're having a good time. But same thing, you know, you've got your, your savage and, um, the, you know, you could come up with the, the, you know, load data for it that works great for you. And, and that you might be using that rifle for the next 20, 30 years and, and hand it down. If you know, you never know. But a 30 odd six is a great rifle. Um, my brother has a Savage, I think it was a, one of the, the Axis two, And and he's had problems. And he's a tinkerer like me. He, he reloads his 30 odd six ammo, but he had issues with the bolt. First, the firing pin was messing up. Uh, he had to actually put a couple of washers in because when they made that rifle, I mean, think, what was it? You could buy it brand new for every 350 bucks. Came with a loophole scope, you know. Uh, I mean, the scope itself to me was worth more than the, the rifle itself. But he had issues. He shot, I think, for a year, year and a half and didn't have any problem with it. And then he had issues. Well, Savage didn't make the parts for it, didn't make replacement parts or anything. So he's been trying to, he's been doing everything himself to get everything to, to work right. Now, my brother's like me, he's stubborn. He likes that rifle, but he's also going to be my photographer at shot. And I also wanted him to come out to shot, you know, to be my photographer, to to shoot some video, but also see what it's all about and to get to shoot some of these different firearms that that Savage Axis 2 might be collecting dust after next week. You know, you might find something that you really love and he loves a 30 out six. He's already got the setup for it. He already has the brass, all the dies for it. Well, find find another manufacturer that makes a a good one. You know, you, Howell makes a good thirty odd six. Browning makes a good thirty odd six. If you if you got the money, a, a Weatherby thirty odd six would be great. You know, it just depends on what you're willing to spend the money on, how often you're going to use it, and are you going to beat the crap out of it? Um, I'm hard on my gear, but I'm also I'm hard on my gear, more so my archery equipment than I am my rifles, because I don't want my scope getting messed up. I don't care if I get scratches on my barrel or my stock or anything, but man, don't, don't touch the scope. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when some of our scopes are between five to a grand just for the scope, you know, that's, that's a price of a new bow. So it's like, that's why I rather spend more of my energy in the archery because it's like the, the return that I get out of archery is far more rewarding than a shot than, than pulling the trigger and that's it because at least with with an arch with the with the bow you get the full motion of it you get the drawback you get the release you get the anchor and all that all those components going together when it, when you release that arrow and it hits that that spot on the target you know you did everything right and like with to get that same type of reward you almost have to be in the reloading mindset so this way then 
everything you it's you get to create everything because so, with air with an arrow you can you can chop an arrow and make a new one much quicker than you can create a a round for a load and such because there's so much more science that goes in behind it sure and you could shoot that arrow a lot faster you know give it you know 24 hours after you've got everything glued down you go shoot it in your backyard if you need to you can't shoot your rifle in your backyard <laughs> you know at least a lot of us can't <laughs> you know and and that's the thing is you can't uh that, that's part of the reason why I started the SoCal bow hunter. You know, I talked about sharing information at the beginning here, but I can hunt a lot more areas and shoot in a lot more areas in Southern California and California in general with my bow. I mean, as long as you're 150 yards from a dwelling, there's a lot of areas out here on the outskirts of the residential area that you can bow hunt. You can't, you can't even be seen with a rifle out there. I'll, I'll bow hunt until i can't do it anymore but i love being able to shoot uh to shoot rifles and and tinker with them and getting that that confidence starting from a and going from b c d all the way to z and being able to you know make that shot count is just a really great culmination of everything you've put into it you know whether it be a month or a couple of years. I mean, it, like I said, it took me a couple of years with my 270 because I'm, I'm picky. A lot more people are less picky than me. There are people that are more picky than me. You do what's good for you. Uh, that's why I tell everybody if they want advice from me, I'll give you a, a good starting point, but do what fits you. If you don't like the way I'm doing something, change it. I mean, as long as you're follow, you're within spec and you're and you're following the rules of reloading or even with, you know, building your own arrows. Don't be stupid, you know, but also if you think that you could take more time on this than than I am, go for it. You know, th there's no. My way is not perfect. Like I said last night, I'm, I'm learning something new. I'm, I was excited. I'm still excited about it. And it's something little, but it's like, it's something I never thought about before. I don't think I'm going to jump right into it, but hearing them, the banter back and forth and talking about the pressure and the range to the target and everything was just really, really cool. That is fun. Now, if you were to reload a handgun round, which one would it be? For me? Yeah. Which or one would you... For which would, if you if you if you were had to um, out of all the all the rounds you can purchase for for a pistol, which one would you actually put the time and energy into to getting the die and everything for it? That's a tough call. Uh, for me, I reload uh, ten millimeter and forty four mag mainly because. I want to get used to, I, I bought my Glock so that I could take it and have, uh, be able to make a, um, get used to a grizzly deterrent if I hunted in, in grizzly country. Same with the 44 mag. I wanted a brush gun that had some knockdown power. Well, I've had the opportunity to buy nine millimeters. Uh, I mean, I, I've shot a lot of different handguns but I love what the 10 millimeter can do. And for me, there's more, 
the investment into that 10 millimeter round, I have more value in that than I do with a nine mil or even a 40 cal. Uh, I want something that I can get, I can practice with. Now my loads are not grizzly loads. My loads are getting, you know, they're heavier loads, but they're not, um, that is the one ammo that I buy. I buy the, uh, um, yeah, now it's on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I can I can picture the box in my garage, but basically it's a 220 grain lead projectile that comes out of that at I don't know if it's 1500 feet per second or whatever, but it's it's a different beast. Uh, I had to buy new springs that would actually eject the shell. Uh, for the Glock, and it's easy to, to swap them out and, and put them back in. I mean, it's it's not a problem at all. But when you shoot that round versus the loads I'm making, it lets you know. I mean, it's it's got. It, I I think I shot five, and I was like, "Yep, I'm good. I can hit the target at you know seven yards." But it's got a mean kick, and but it, and I say mean kick, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit there. A 44 Super Red Hawk, 44 Mag Super Red Hawk is going to have more of a kick than that 10 millimeter round. But more, I have talked to more guides and more hunters in Alaska that use a Glock uh, 20 that's a 10 millimeter as their grizzly gun than anybody else, than any other handgun. Close second would be a 44 mag, you know, super red hawk or, you know, but, you know, your, your accuracy changes, you know, of course with barrel length and there, but it also increases the kick. The, I, I think I've got a five and a half inch barrel on my Glock, you know, five and a half inch barrel on a, um, a 44. It's going to have kick, but there's some that are four inch and then there's some that are seven inch, but you're not going to go around walk around grizzly country carrying a seven inch 44 mag you're going to be dragging a boat anchor you know you want something that can do the job and you're not hunting with it you're using it to protect yourself so that's why i carry you know i've gotten where i really like the glock so i i try to shoot that as much as i can when i go to the range so that's why i reload that Okay, because uh, I, I didn't realize when, when I commented on your your post that was a ten millimeter. Now I looked because that was the was that the Remington ten millimeter that you that was the in? no that's the Springfield, oh, Springfield. Uh, the TRP uh, that they released what two or three years ago I think it was two years ago well, maybe it's three years ago I just know when I shot it I seriously to this day have not shot a ten millimeter that felt as good and was as accurate i mean i've i've shot 10 millimeters i shot them from ruger that day and mean kick and everything and i went up there and i got lucky there was nobody around and the guy said okay you got targets at 10 yards and 25 yards you think you can hit them and i'm like let's give it a shot nine out of ten i hit and i'm like this handgun is awesome i got all the details on it and everything and i got back home and i realized that it's not legal in california (laughs) Oh man. <laughs> uh, it was also, I believe it was uh, $1,700. Oh my word. 
you know, but wow, I tell you what, if there was a handgun that I was going to spend money on, I'd have saved up for that handgun. Uh, it was and is to this day my dream handgun as far as if I were to carry something. I mean, I'd get rid of my Glock in a second. That thing, just the, the trigger was buttery smooth. The action was smooth. I mean, and and the kick, the way the handgun was built. I mean, it is. It's a 1911 you know, feel, and it just so nice in your hands. Now, have and you shot I've, the? I'm uh, oh, sorry, um, to interrupt, but I was going to. I was going. It just came to my mind. Have you shot the Rock Island 10 millimeter? Uh, I don't believe I have. Okay, because that one seems to like I've seen watch videos on YouTube, and it seems to get pretty good praise for it. And a lot of people like the recoil, and they went with the heavier spring and the 14 pound spring, and seems to be uh, a nice upgrade to it but it's like i was just kind of getting your opinion because i was mentioning to you it's like i want to get myself an enhanced pistol carbine and i'm and it's like i i'm struggling between either 45 or 10 millimeter because it's like arrow precision is going to be whenever they roll it out they're going to be have one and they can they have a complete upper and a complete lower just to kind of like you get it and then make those fine tweaks as you go as you progress through it at all and it's like I, i'm not uh I like both platforms. I just don't know which one I should pull a trigger on because whatever I go with this is going to be my next sidearm. Gotcha. Well, and the way to look at it is what are you looking at it for? Is it, is it for, you know, EDC? Is it for hunting? Is it for just plinking? What I noticed is that with, with my hand size, I've, I've tried the, the Glock, uh, what's the Glock 45s? I, I can't remember the model number of it, but I had that one in my hand and it's like, it just, it feels, it comes halfway in my pinky. And then it's like, when it comes down to large hands, I want to be able to grab it and feel comfortable with it. And it's like, I don't feel like I'd be confident with it, you know, cause I feel like I have to have a, I have to um, compensate, compensate for something. And I, I don't like that feeling. Cause like I shot a, Oh, 40 Glock compact down in Florida. And that's, that's those shots up there in that corner that well, I can't really see it from here, but it's like, it's all over the place because it wasn't right for my hand. Now. This right here was from a 45 at 30 yards, the entire magazine right there. Nice. And, and that was from the American classic, um, 19, uh, 1911. And I, that's where I fell in love with it. Cause it shot so well. And it was the first time me ever picking up a 45 and actually discharging it. And it was like, I just liked that the way it fit my hand and such. Now the downside about a 45 or a 10 in 1911 platform, most of them are not going to be concealed and carry. So it's like, I've kind of put that out of my mind, you know, it's like, but sure. I want, I want something that I can like, at least I can hunt with and defend myself out here in Wisconsin because we have bear and we have wolves and it's like, I don't want to be in a, in, a, in a John Dudley scenario where you're the only guy with the bow and your guides all have uh, uh, firearms. Yeah. It's like, because I don't know if you've ever heard that story on Joe Rogan yeah. when Dudley was on there about that. It's like, that would be a scary scenario to be in it. And it's like, and all you have is a bow to kill off a pack of wolves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard that story. I also watched uh, uh, Stuck in the Rut has a YouTube channel and he hunts wolves and he had a rifle and you could hear the wolves howling around him. And I'm like, I'm watching the video and it raised the hair on the back of my neck. And I'm like, yeah, you know, wolves are just, they're smart. 
they're cunning and man one firearm and so i think what it, you're going you're talking about the 45 and a 10 millimeter I, I think the good thing to weigh out um with that you know putting edc out of your mind you know like you've done uh, i talked to a guy that uh he carries uh in his backpack he carries a 45 and I asked him why why don't want to carry a nine mil or why don't you carry a 10 and I, I kind of had an idea of what he was going to tell me, but his description was, was short and sweet. He wants the speed of the nine mil with the knockdown power of the 10. Now it's an exact, a slight exaggeration there, but you have a larger projectile going faster than that 10 millimeters going slower than the nine, but that nine millimeter projectile is a lot smaller than that 45. Uh, so he carries the 45 and he's the same way. He's got big mitts like you do. I don't, I've got medium sized hands. So the, my Glock is the Glock SF. So it's the short frame. My pinky hangs a tad bit, but not enough where one of the other guys was at the range and he grabbed it and it was like, he was drinking wine, you know, <laughs> you know, it was hanging right off. Same, same type of deal. Um, you want to make sure that it's going to fit you for, for what you need it for. And if you want the best of both worlds, I think the 45 is going to work. And you already said the 1911 frame fits you well. Um, I don't know if you ever watch, uh, watch Longmire. Yeah. Oh, that was a great show. I like, I like yeah. how when Netflix picked it up and, and actually gave the show, the closing it deserved that they, that, that sixth season really sent it home quick. Sent it home. Yeah. Well, I should say. So he, he carries that 1911. And if you, you look at it and if, see, I read the books before I, I saw this the series, they did a, a great job with that series, but he carries it and they don't really talk a lot about it. He just says it, you know, fits him better. Well, he's a big guy, you know, he's got big hands and the 1911 frame is if you don't shoot it, it can look intimidating, but even when I shot it, you know, with that TRP, I was amazed. It didn't look like it would be as comfortable as it was. Because the target acquisition on it was very, very comfortable. And it's like, as this video can show, it's like, I, I brought this home from Florida just because I was, I was really impressed with myself with having no prior knowledge of shooting a 45, not understanding the recoil of it. And I was able to pl put all of those at 30 yards. I was just completely floored. Like even the guests that I was with, it was, was quite impressed. Um, and then the, where I was working at the time was like, where I, cause I was, my company I'm currently working for, it flew me down there, down to, to Florida to help set up the thing. And I want, well, one of the things I want to, check off my bucket list was to go to the gun range. And it's like, none of my crew wanted to go except for the security guard. So it's like, we had fun. It was good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> do, you, do you remember what uh, 45 it was? It was the American classic. Uh, that's just, that, I'm not sure what the manufacturer, but that was the, the name of it was, or that is the manufacturer. And then we were using MagTech uh, ammunition. Boy, that is a dirty round. There's so much powder that came out of that, but it shot well. So it's like, and, and, yeah, there you go. I mean, shoot, shoots. Well. Look at how accurate it was. I mean, yeah, that's like you said, like when, in the very beginning, it was like when you said like you could have 
the multiple different powders and you can have ones that clean better, but the wor- the best shot comes from a 31. That just kind of makes more sense. It's like, I thought it was just a cheap range round. That's what they, that's what they have them use in their firearms, but it performed very, very well. And it's like, I wouldn't have thought about it. I wonder like now after hearing you explain that makes sense, like why it shot, why they use it to kind of give people that, um, uh, understanding that this is a, a good company to buy the round room. Granted it's dirty, but you know, you can clean yourself up. And if you're in a heat of the moment, you're not going to care about the powder. Well, and let me, let me add on to that too. You bring up a very good point. And I'm glad you said that the, was it MagTech ammo that you were yeah, using? MagTech. Yes. So it was, it was a dirty, dirty ammo. Well, you know, yeah, but you're going to, now you're going to have to clean that firearm a lot more. So if you're, a, you shoot a lot, and I, you know, uh, Bill used to shoot. Uh, I think he was, he was telling me they'd go every week on their lunch hour. And he got to the point where, I mean, he was doing the same thing you were consistently on smaller targets because he was shooting that handgun all the time. I don't know about you. Um, I find reloading therapeutic. I find cleaning my gun a pain in the butt. <laughs> I hate doing it. <laughs> uh, if if I had one rifle that I was shooting and I was I was doing that with, it's not a big deal. But when I go to the range, I usually bring four or five, shoot them all, and I don't always clean them. I'll be honest; I don't always clean them. If I only put a hundred rounds through it, I'm not going to clean it. Uh, I know that uh, I've got friends that they clean it every time they go to. If they put one round through it, they clean it, and I'm like, no. I, uh, there's there's enough people that I know that shoot long range that were military snipers that will tell you, you know what, 200 rounds through your barrel now it's just right, now it's now it's going to shoot well, and and they're not wrong. Uh, I don't clean it every single time. Uh, you put 200 rounds through, you got to remember that powder buildup and copper buildup and everything. Now you've got basically a, it's consistent. You clean it out you've now you've got you know it's mirror mirror smooth in there and all the powder is gone and everything well you, you can have to the first few shots your first shot is going to burn off the oil that's that's left in there but it's going to be a little bit different i've had better results with my 270 i put 50 rounds through it and it might be months before i clean it now i don't want my barrel getting pitted and everything like that. So I will clean it. Uh, I'm not saying I never clean it, but I'm not going to be apt to clean it immediately when I get home. I might take it out to the range another time and shoot and, and then clean it. But um, but then again, going back to the, the handgun, if that MagTech ammo is working and you like it and it's within your price range, and you don't feel like reloading it great get it just know that you're going to have to clean that often but the great thing about a handgun especially those i mean you take them apart you could be watching a tv program and and clean it and to me that's fun i'd rather clean my my handgun than than i would uh you know my rifle but to each his own yeah, it, it takes a little bit longer time to clean out that rifle because it's like the, all the all the extra component uh, the just for the length of it, to running that rod up and down it. I got pretty lucky. My wife likes cleaning guns, 
And she oh, worked nice. at, she worked, used to work at for Gander Outdoors here in town. And she, she learned all, all aspects of firearms, getting to play with all the nice fancy lubes and pads and all that fun stuff. So she kind of has a really good background, but for her, it's like you, she, she, it's her way of zenning out. And she knows she's got a, a Smith and Wesson nine millimeter carry and she loves it. And she knows when she's clean it and, and how many rounds that, uh, that needs to where where she knows where it's trying to start faltering. Cause she's got a, a period in there where she knows like any, any, any rounds after like 150, it's going to be wherever she she can, wherever she wants to point it. It's going to go where it goes. And then once it gets close to 500, then that's when she knows that it's time to clean it. And we'll just spend a few hours doing it. And uh, we even get my daughter involved with the tooth this way. Then she kind of gets the idea of it and uh, getting getting around firearms. So like, because it's like getting them comfortable at a young age, experience like really opened my horizons and really res- respected the something that could take life much more uh not taking it for granted you know like making sure that you follow all the safety rules something like you don't you don't pull an alec baldwin you know yeah absolutely because yeah, even even like listening to other stars that uh stood up against him and stuff like that it's like you know even these guys that don't shoot check their firearms even like well, i've watched a, a few things with will smith and he always checks them just because of all the yeah. the show movies he's been in so it's like you know gun safety goes around so it's like well what was he thinking Cause it's not the first time he's been around firearms, but anyways, man, that's, that's, um, so I'm thinking I, I like your, your explanation. I think that a 45 would be more, it's like, I've been leaning towards that way anyways. And it's like, you, you point out the, the key aspects that would really want me to send me home. Cause I've always liked the 10 millimeter. Cause I think it's fun and exciting, but then the back of my, the prepper side, I mean, the tin foil hat kind of guy, it's like, well, I'd rather have some that it's a very common caliber. So that's why I can easily find it. If, if we have to go into, um, uh, the zombie apocalypse, yo. Sure, sure. And I've got a whole bunch of forty-five brass too. So if you get a forty-five, you get started on reloading. <laughs> there we go. That's a, now. Is this when this is this brass is from when you came back from Las Vegas? Still, no. Or? The brass, the brass is uh, all of that brass has been prepped and loaded, or you know, tossed. So it's the uh, the forty-five brass was. I mean, Bill used to shoot a lot. And I mean, when I say a lot, I mean a lot. And he just, you know, sometimes he also got brass from other people. You know, sometimes we'll go to the range and a guy will show up with a case of ammo and they'll blow through it and they don't want, they don't reload and they don't, they'll pick up their brass. Fortunately, I shoot with a nice, good group of guys, five or six of us. Everybody picks their brass up. But if Bill's there, he usually goes home with the brass. Because we know he'll he'll load it. If he doesn't, I take the brass. You know, uh, I just make sure because I know at some point I'm going to load it. Um, except for the 45. But Bill, when he moved, Bill moved uh, a few years ago to Arizona, and he had all this brass. I mean, brass is heavy, you know. And he took what he needed for for his reloading and everything. But he gave he gave it out to a couple of us. You know, hey, I've got coffee cans full of it if you guys want it take it otherwise it's going to get recycled and we're like no it's not getting recycled we'll take it <laughs> and so um one of my other friends mike he he took a lot of the 45 because he's got a 45 but he doesn't reload as often as i do and i took a bunch of the 45 just in case i ever did get a 45 but i honestly have no desire to purchase a 45 handgun i've got my 10 millimeter and I'm happy with that. Um, I have a purpose for it. 
and that's that's it um if i lived in a different state where i could carry i probably would have a different firearm as well uh, but that's beside the point you know i have my rifles and everything so i've got all this this brass that i've saved up but i still i mean when we go to shot show um we're going to go to a range and shoot and you know i plan we plan on you know testing out our different rounds and everything like that yeah we'll pick up our own brass but hey well, i'll bring a couple of five gallon buckets too and pick up as much 308 brass as i can uh very rare to find usually above a 308 you don't usually find a whole lot of brass for like 300 wind mag or wind short but when i do i take it all i mean just the brass alone people will you know we talked about it earlier they'll trade for it you know they want the guys that have 300 wind mags i mean i have plenty of brass i don't really need any more um i have some that i haven't even loaded yet but i'll still pick up some more you know and clean it up and and prep it and everything so that if the need arises that i need to trade for something i've got it so what goes into cleaning and prepping around uh, cleaning and prepping the case is, um, it's, uh, you, you've got to, uh, let, let's just say it's filthy. Say, let's say it's a, it came out like a, the mag tech ammo. It's just, the case is grimy. I mean, you pick it up and it's chalky and just gross. Um, I live for that just because I know how nice it's going to look when I took, take it out. Like that picture I, I posted on Instagram. That brass was filthy three hours before that. Now you can, there's a lot of different, there's a couple different ways you can clean it. You can clean it in a tumbler with, uh, with walnut, crushed walnut media. Uh, there's corn cob media too, but I think walnut media holds up a little bit better. But I also have another tumbler that has stainless steel pins. They're about a half inch long, uh, stainless steel pins and water. And you can, you just put in, you know, a teaspoon of Dawn dishwashing soap or a tablespoon of dishwashing soap. Uh, I usually put in uh, Lemmy Shine dishwashing soap. Uh, I've had, I've heard that from a couple different people, tried it. I definitely recommend it. Uh, your brass will come out looking like it's brand new. Now, there's pros and cons to both setups. The the walnut media is nice. You can throw it in there. You know, uh, you get right back from the range. You can take 30 round, 30 cases, throw them in there, turn it on, let it sit for, run for two hours, three hours, um, and it'll come out really nice and shiny. Um, and it'll have a little bit of a coating on it and everything from, you know, whatever you put in the, the walnut media, if you put anything in it at all. Then you've got to resize it and it'll pop the primer, the spent primer out. Um, and then you'll have a filthy primer pocket. So you have a primer pocket tool that you, I have one that I attach to a drill that I just zip in and out, cleans it right out and, and resizes it. A lot of, a lot of people just use a brush um, for it, but I have far too many, too much brass to do that. Now, if you use the stainless steel media, it's going to be, it's going to clean it faster and a little bit better. It's going to clean the inside and outside, and it's going to be 
awesome. But now you got to dry it. So I do have a dryer. I have a, uh, a brass dryer. Basically, it's, you know, a dehydrator on steroids. Uh, but it will dry the brass, um, leave it in there and dry it. Because then you have to make sure that when you're done drying, that you shake out and you inspect each case so that there's no stainless steel pins left inside the case. Uh, so you don't want to have that that mistake. You know, the, the walnut media just is dry. It comes right out, but the stainless steel is wet. Uh, and I've got, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, all right, I think everything's good. Perfect. And nope, <laughs> it didn't, didn't work so well, but I also have a, uh, uh, case separator, uh, basically separates the, you know, the, the walnut media from the case. You just put it in there, lock down the top. So it's enclosed and then you just rotate the heck out of it and it, takes everything out of it and everything settles to the bottom, except for the brass. You can do the same thing with the, the stainless steel media. Once it's dried, I do the same thing. Uh, zip it down through. I make sure everything's cleaned out so I don't get a mixture of the walnut media in it, but uh, makes it that much faster. But the, the cases are really clean uh, when they come out. The, uh, then I, sometimes I will also take that brass that's been cleaned and throw it in the walnut media to give it a little bit of a coating because that water will have an effect on your brass over time. Some brass, some cheap brass, some, you know, like PMC. Um, I'll use that just because I have some of that that I reloaded. The Lapua brass, wicked shiny, didn't have a spot on it. The PMC did have some spots the spots aren't really going to make that much of a difference. They're just going to be an eyesore for you. If you like pristine cases, uh, you can clean that off a little elbow grease, a little rag if you want, but there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. And even my way is slightly different than probably the next 10 people do, do what works for you. Uh, I you know, when I come back from Vegas, I'm sure I'm going to have some, some brass that I'm just going to want to get clean right away. And I will not throw it in my tumbler. I'll throw it or in my walnut media. I'll throw it in the stainless steel. I mean, you got to remember too, when that water comes out, that water is coming out looking like it came from, you know, coal fracking. It's disgusting. <laughs> um, but it lets you know that it's working too. I mean, because that's, that brass comes out. And, and you have to rinse it off too. When, after you get it out of there, you've got to rinse it off in some water because there's still material sticking to that. Um, and once you do, and then you throw it in the, in the dryer, you know, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's just, a, it's an awesome process. Once you get the hang of it, um, you just, I think the biggest problem out of all of it is you need space for all of these gadgets. Uh, I can't keep everything out because if I were just into reloading, I'd probably have enough space, but because I'm reloading and I'm also building my own arrows and tinkering with my bow and into archery and bow hunting, I got too much stuff, <laughs> uh, but I love it. I love the, the, the process. Um, so it's just a matter of getting stuff in and out and, and setting up. You just have to be dedicated. 
that is a very valid point with all that aspect. Because I remember like just flashbacks because I've been talking, this is like 90, 91 when my dad was still reloading at that time. And the space he had had enough for all that fun stuff because he, the house that we were living in in rural Iowa had a sun porch and he kind of converted that into his own little office where he had all those individual pieces. He stored his uh, powder elsewhere, but that's where he had everything else. There was plenty of lighting because he's got bad eyesight. And so had plenty of lighting for him, natural lighting. So this way he's able to see everything and everything in glass and such. So it made sense for him to have it out there. But yeah, like putting that in my mind, it's like, well, if I buy someone like I, it's by all invest all this, into all the components stuff like that it's like how much would a setup like a, a when you're when you're by time you're like as you've matured through your processes and you're learning how much money have you dumped into just all the reloading just the equipment not the uh, not all the extra attachments stuff well i guess you'd have to say all the extra attachments and stuff but like uh not just stuff that the, the equipment you necessarily need to get everything loaded not the powder and the charges and all that fun stuff Sure. I would say I'm going to use RCBS just because I've been using RCBS for decades. Um, and the system I bought, I mean, you can buy, I bought mine brand new um, just because I wanted everything that came with this kit. And I want to say it was between four and $500. Okay. That makes sense. Now you can find what the, you know, basically it's a rock chucker, basically the thing with the, the long arm, um, you can find a lot of those. There's a lot of guys that are selling reloading setups. And they're selling them dirt cheap. Um, I've seen rock chuckers as low as 75 bucks that are, some of them are rusted. You can, you can clean them up. I mean, look at that 308. If you look at the 308 barrel that I cleaned up, it was pitiful. I mean, the, the barrel was pitted. It was all rust. By the time I was done, that you could, see your reflection of it i mean not quite but it was it was clean um same type of thing so uh you can do the same thing i would say you you know just to start you're going to need a tumbler let's say that's 60 bucks if you, let, let, let's say you have one rifle your your die kit your die setup is going to cost you anywhere from 40 to 60 bucks for that uh, you're going to have, uh, if you, you can case, you're going to have to trim. I highly recommend an electric trimmer. Um, they do have, I think it's Frank, is it Franklin Armory? I think it's Franklin Armory it has, it's basically a zip trimmer. Got a little cable, like, you know, start a lawnmower and you put the case in and you just zip it back and forth. It, if you're doing more than one round, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I can um, see. I can see that really adding up for time and energy. And, I mean, you know how it is. You know, even when shooting shooting a bow, you get fatigued, and if you get fatigued, mistakes happen. Exactly. And all you got to do is pull on that little too hard. I mean, you're a big guy. I'm a big guy. All I got to do is let my arm drop, and you snap it, and then now you got to set it all back up again. That electric case trimmer. If I know I'm going to prep, a, a, let's say, 100 rounds, I'm not using that that hand trimmer. I'm going to go through and I got that electric trimmer. I set up everything and I'm just like, zzz, zzz, and it, I'm done. Um, but that that in itself was a couple hundred bucks. Um, that was a little, 
you don't need that. I highly recommend it if you can get into it. But uh, you're looking at, let's say, four, five. I mean, you're talking anywhere from. Seven, probably 700. Well, then, then you're going to have a powder dispenser as well. Uh, I definitely, if you're going to load a lot, uh, when I started off with my dad, all he had was each, uh, each die set will come with a little scoop. It's a little yellow scoop. They all come with it. And uh, I, I'd say all of them most of them come with a little scoop and that's usually what you scoop out your powder with you're putting it on a, a scale you're taking the powder out you're putting it on a scale and then you have a trickler so you once you you get down to a, a close range like let's say my load was 40 grains and i'm at 39 or 39 and a half and i only need that 0.5 well then you use that trickler you just rotate a dial and the little bit of powder comes out at a time until you get your exact weight and then your load is done I load a lot more than I used to 30 years ago. So doing it that way would take me forever. So I have a Lyman, uh, I think it's a Gen 6 uh, electric powder dispenser. There's a couple of different companies that, that make good ones. You know, Hornaday's got one, RCBS has one. Lyman, I've, I've had really good results with this one and I've had it for three or four years now. Um, that's gonna set you back a couple hundred bucks. I would say a good estimation, a grand. Sounds like it. That's just from coming from experience, you know, and it's like, I think that's the way you really got to look at it. And uh, anybody in the outdoor world understands, like, if you're going to do something right, you're going you're to spend the extra money for quality. And there's no sense in trying to go cheap because all you're going to be doing is you're going to spend more money because now you bought that. And then you realize, oh, I should have bought this instead. Yeah. Well, I think the the, the way to look at it too is, Sure, you can buy. Let, let's say the pandemic wasn't here, and you could buy factory ammo all the all the time. Factory ammo isn't always consistent. It could be slightly different, you know. And for hunting purposes, like like federal ammo for my two seventy, I could put any two seventy federal load in there, and it would shoot great. So there, there's worked really well. But I've shot some that just were terrible from different manufacturers. But I know that my manufacturer, me doing it myself, the Quackenbush manufacturer for me, <laughs> it's going to be consistent every time because the only person I can blame is myself. And I make sure, plus, let's say you go out, I mean, you, you've got that. Now you've got to buy all the components. But when, once you get all the components, now you don't have to worry about ammo. You can just say, geez, you know, you got a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning and your family's, you know, sleeping in or they're going to go do something well hey you go in the garage and you spend a couple hours loading a couple hundred rounds and it's it's therapeutic it's fun and the next time you go to the range you've got 200 rounds and they're ready to be fired uh and you don't have to worry about it now i mean some people might hear this now man a couple hundred rounds what the heck why do you need a couple hundred rounds uh, you know what if i've got the brass and, and I've got the components, I'm going to load it. I'm not just going to let it sit around. And as far as I'm concerned, you can't have too much ammo. 
no, my wife seems to think I have too many emails, but it's like, I don't have enough. Cause it's like, if I get reported to the, the news, I want to make sure it's like, it's, it's army level amount, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not that crazy, but I'm not that crazy, but you know, it, it is nice. Cause it's like, you, if, if things do go South and things where you have to really consider about like having several thousand rounds of ammunition is unrealistic because you either have to a defend your place, or if you need to bug out, you're not going to be able to bring everything with you. You're going to trigger your right. majority of your focus is going to be focused on the ammunition because that you can barter with or you can take or you can defend. And then uh, one of one of my prepper friends said, it's like another thing you always want to stock up on is little shot glasses of alcohol because those will be very valuable to barter with when it comes down the road. Good point. Very good point. Because you can get it because sometimes if you, if you hit the, the, the liquor store is just right, you can pick them up for 50 cents to or 50 cents to 75 cents a little shot there and it's like and if you need a stockpile immediately you just got to point them to go it's like well if you need everybody likes alcohol it's a great way to barter with something you know oh yeah yeah i mean you know if it hits the fan <laughs> that might be more valuable than water that is know, for some people that is very true yeah Cause it's like, even with like, uh, with the, when everything went on lockdown, they need to keep the liquor stores open for the, for the alcoholics. Others so don't, so don't die from detox. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, I it's, talked to a, go ahead. Oh no. Go, you, you go on your point. Oh, I just, it was just a funny thing. I was talking to a, a, a survival you know, prepper buddy of mine. And, uh, he was talking about the, the maps of his neighborhood. And I was like, why do you have a map of your neighborhood? And he's like, oh, I got a 55 gallon drum of water my family of four that might last us you know x amount of weeks after that what do i do i'm like well you can go out in search of water you can do this he goes no i just know where all the swimming pools are in the neighborhood and i thought about it for a minute i was like thousands of gallons of water just sitting right there okay i would have never thought about that but alcohol you're not going to find a pool full of alcohol you know, so having that is a valuable commodity. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, having ammo or having components, I mean, that's that's why I've kept that 45 brass. You know, the, the nine mil brass worked great. I was getting into what, you know, I wanted to shoot longer range. I'm not going to say I'm shooting precision anything. It just, it's precise for me, but I'm not, the only person I'm competing with is me, but I want to make sure that I have good components if not the best components and Hey, if I can trade for it. And it was a great feeling. I mean, being able to trade something I wasn't using, I knew was valuable with somebody that was trading me what he knew was valuable. We made a great trade. And I'm sorry to say for him, but I think I came out on top. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You both won. That's the best part about it. It was a win-win scenario. Now, have you heard that, Water is on the commodities on the futures on the futures market. No, and they got they got listed here last February and it's been on there. Most people don't know about it yet because everybody's distracted. But that's something we got to pay attention to. Like, what are the elites telling us without telling us they're trying to do something shady? Because if you notice, like, there's a lot of push for like um, like Gates to bought all this land up and stuff like that. One is to produce his own synthetic food, but also it controls a lot of aquifers, a lot of freshwater aquifers. Uh-huh. That's something we we'll look forward to. And like you know, we're talking at the beginning of the episode where things are getting poisoned, like mentioning 
uh, the, the Minneapolis area and this in the St. Croix area and such. So all that stuff is starting to start trickling down. And it's like, and I also talked to um, uh, my uh, fishing guy that does um, salmon fishing over there in uh, Mich- Lake Michigan there. And he was thought, brought some good points about the lack of water, lack of oxygen, even in there because of all the traffic, all the traffic going back and forth and how much pollution a tanker produces, you know? And it's like, that's well, one thing that we need to really start paying attention to is about our oceans and such. Like we need to, instead of starting to ship stuff from China all the way over here and how much pollution it goes from here to here, we start bringing things back stateside, start manufacturing us here to be, be, uh, have, be more self-sustaining, you know, this is way, then we don't have to worry about continuing, um, uh, polluting the ocean, stuff like that. Cause it's, it's a, it's a, it's a de- deadly cycle. And if we don't stop it now, we're going to take forever to, to recoup, recover what we did, you know, and, and, uh, mother earth has its own way of resetting us. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you could equate, you know, exactly that with, with just, I mean, I'll take, use myself as an example, you know, gaining a lot of weight during COVID, you know, sitting on, on my butt, you know, I know that I need to do this to, to go out and exercise and eat better. But if I don't, well, then, you know, I put on X amount of weight. And there was a guy that told, told, uh, told me one time, you know, that weight took a long time to put on. It's going to take longer to take off. Same type you know, with polluting. You know, I, I watched a video of them uh, taking trash out of the the ocean. What is that uh, that whirlpool or whatever it is where all the trash, the, the garbage whirlpool there? They took out twenty thousand pounds of trash in nets, and it was just I was shocked. And they, they barely put a dent in it. Yeah, there's there's and, a there's I know what you're talking about. There's a spot in between um, Hawaii and California, and the in the surface area of this this floating island the debris as big as Texas. Is it really? Yeah, it's it's that massive. Man. And there's all there's a kid that figured out a means to put in these traps. There's like four or five rivers in Europe that produce the majority of the amount of uh, pollution and stuff like that. He said you put you, you place these traps in these spots right here, it will drastically change the output of how much trash actually gets floated out to it. Because you know India doesn't take care of the country very well. China is not very good about their such. And so there's a lot of countries out there that would really benefit. For cleaning this up because not every not every country is put in the amount of thought process we have about collecting our garbage because we're at 300 million you look at india and that's like was it four or five billion people like two or three billion people in that one country alone that's a lot yeah. of people a lot and of people so, and so that's a lot of garbage a lot of fecal matter and such and so there's a lot of to- there's a lot of toxicity out there and it's like it's amazing how those folks survive because it goes from one extreme to another and in one district they're in Dubai yeah. and such. It's 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 it is amazing what we've done. Now, uh, I wanted to lead into your the the shot show because we were talking a little about about this earlier this afternoon. How did you know? Did you get do you get invited to go to shot show or do you just pay the the media press pass to get in? What's what's the process for for a guy to get into with if you're not industry if you're media if you're media. So you've got a, there, there's a set of rules, uh, just like ATA used to be. Um, have you ever been to ATA? So I was invited for uh, years to go to ATA. And I didn't go because I had a conflict every year uh, around that time. 
And I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> but um, shot the way they do. Uh, you have you have to get your media credentials. You have to basically pass their test. You know, uh, send them what your media is, what you you know are doing. Um, you know who you are. Uh, I can't remember everything that's on the the form, but the first time you do it, you know you're you're putting a lot into it. You're you're going on a wing and a prayer and hoping that everything's gonna to work out. Now, if you've been doing it for a while, like when when I first went to shot, I think it was five years ago was my first shot. My blog's been around for twelve. So, or going on 12, I think next month will be 12 years. So it's, I had an established foundation of articles, stories, gear reviews, you name it. They could look at it and say, yeah, okay, he's legit. Now, Joe Schmo next door starts a blog up a month before shot. Says, I have a blog, but I shoot, you know, at the range once a year. I want media credentials. They're going to turn you down. You know, so you've got to have an established, basically, I think the, the one thing that really uh, rings true is you got to have a byline and masthead or something from the publication that you're writing for or uh, blog that you're writing for and show that you are involved in the shooting sports. Just, you know, and so with mine, I mean, I think once with mine, once or twice with mine, I was rejected. Uh, and I had to go back and say, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa why, why am I rejected? I gave you everything you needed. And then they looked at it and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, we just had to dig a little deeper. But you, if, if you really want to go, you've got to be, you know, proactive about that. So once that's done, there's, uh, you know, you get your media, you know, your credentials, you pick up your credentials. They used to mail them to you. Um, now you pick them up at different locations, um, because it's really easy. Uh, I mean, I have a graphic design background and photography background, so it's very easy to duplicate those passes. Um, now back then they didn't have all the QR codes. Now they've got the QR codes, so they, they scan them, but getting a little off topic there. So you get your, your approved media. You can now go to the shot show floor as media. Now they have industry day at the range or media day at the range. It's industry day at the range is what I believe they call it now. That's the day before shot show starts. That's the most fun day as far as I'm concerned. Um, half a mile long and you have bays with, I forget how many, uh, firearms manufacturers and, uh, you know, bicycle, you know, electric bikes and, and everything that you get to test out everything on their dime, but you have to get invited to that. And that's, that's through the national shooting sports foundation, the NSSF. I mean, you've got to be a member of the NSSF. It's 25 bucks a year, huh. you know, dropping the bucket. If you really want to do this, 25 bucks is not a big deal. So you've got to, you've got to have that. Um, the nice thing about it is 
because I own the blog, I write enough and I, I write for other things other than my blog too. I haven't in the last year, but I've written for, for magazines and other blogs before. Uh, you get to take a team of up to three more people with you. So you can have you and three other people. And, and which is great, but you've got to um, validate that. You have to actually send them a letter requesting their presence, you know, at SHOT Show for X skill or whatever. And that's what I've done. I mean, I, the guys that I bring are not just guys that are just my buddies that we just chum it up. Uh, you know, in the past, I've had, you know, the guys that have been at the range with me that know a lot about firearms, that uh, the one Bill is my firearm specialist. If I've, I've got a question while I'm there, he knows it. And that's why I bring him. You know, he knows it. He also knows what to look for for certain firearms. And he's like a kid in a candy store when we go to media day. But he also is a wealth of knowledge. Um, some of the other guys I bring, um, my buddy Mike, uh, that couldn't make it this year, uh, awesome videographer, photographer. Uh, I've worked with him for years. So I, I've invited him along. So this year was a little change up and two of the guys that normally go with me you know, bailed um, for good reason. One, one's getting a, has a job interview and the other one's having a kid. So I couldn't blame them. Um, doesn't say I didn't razz him a little bit though. <laughs> so uh, I told, <laughs> I told him, you, you weren't, you weren't thinking about Chacho, you know, this many months ago. Um, but <laughs> anyway, uh, so this year is different. My, I'm actually bringing my hunting partner um, as uh, a photographer, and uh, and he hunts a lot more with a rifle uh, than I do, even. So I bring it, I'm bringing him, but I'm also bringing my brother from New York, who, I mean, one of his, he talks about it a lot. And, uh, he's never been to Vegas. And, but he's been hunting as long as I have, and he's been shooting, you know, for a long time. I do a lot more shooting and a lot more reloading, but he's never been in this type of situation where he gets to see all these different firearms and shoot them. I have to pay for it, you know, and get to talk. And I say that and I joke about that, but it's the truth. I mean, especially in this day and age but you get the experts right there next to you while you're shooting and you can ask them questions. You're not just going up. Hey, can I shoot this? Pew, pew, pew. Oh, thanks. You know, no, I sat down with a Marine scout sniper um, on a rise armament rifle three years ago, four years ago. And he, after one shot, he had me dialed in and I was shooting a gong at 962 yards and I hit four out of five shots just with his guidance. I'd have been all over the place, you know, but he was like, Nope, here's, here's what you got to do. And he, he said it quickly so that I could understand, but he did it with Kentucky windage because he's trying to cycle people through and everything, but he was incredibly, you're sitting there 
you're the person he's talking to, not the five guys waiting in line to shoot. You're there. He wants to talk to you about it. And if you've got questions, you know, you ask them. So I carry a notebook. I carry, you know, my camera. Uh, I get more pictures on my iPhone probably than anything, but he's coming along. My brother is coming along, you know, as my, uh, as my videographer to document everything because he knows my movements, my mannerisms and everything. And he knows how to capture that. So I want to, you know, somebody there that can do that, but I also want to be able to flip it on him and have him do it as, and that's one of my, this year is, is something new for me is I've always posted some Instagram videos and, and everything, but this year uh, I want to put together a video especially for my buddy Ramon and for my brother that after we go to media day, I want to record something and say, okay, what did you think about media day? Give me, give me your, just your honest, raw feelings about it. What was the best thing that you shot? What was the worst thing? What are you looking forward to on the floor tomorrow? And then have something that I can share and to get a newbie's reaction to it. um, Well, I think will be pretty cool. I think so too. That's a very, uh, and plus it's like not only that getting his perspective on it, but it's like, you can spend time with your brother and it's like being able to get him out here, get him out to Las Vegas and get cross a couple of things off his list is exciting. Like I, like we were talked to earlier this week, last week and I lived out in Phoenix. So it's like going to Vegas was not that big of a deal to me. I, I just never really knew about shot show. Cause I know right around, I think it's Christmas time or right. Or, or sort of the beginning of December, like Phoenix has one of the one of the one of the larger gatherings of of uh, outdoor enthusiasts for their big. Uh, they take over the uh, fairgrounds down there, and they have several. They have seven, eight different tents, and all their buildings are all filled with with firearms galore, from ammunition to World War II stuff. So it's like it's all kind of all there. But I wish I would have like paid more attention to that when I was in, when I was actually there in Arizona and like I've one but I was so involved with paintball it's like it's all I really had on my mind and girls I was that that too in school but it was mostly girls <laughs> yeah. but also being able to it's like but I, I was I fell in love with a paintball sport and it's like when you were when you're talking about when you get to go out and practice and stuff like that and shoot and such one of the things that we used to do is we used to play horse now playing horse the paintball gun's pretty easy but we just pick out some of the most difficult targets and i'll tell you what it, it brought my a game up because i'm competing with someone that's been playing since the 90s and playing at a high level that i've never played at before but it's like having that uh, that mentorship to teach you how to like how you want to play with it and stuff like that learning like ball barrel matches that is our term where you would match with the with your match grade for ballistics so it's like there's a lot of similarities to it, but the only difference is propellant is air. And it was it was a fun experience because now it's like you're you're trying to everybody has to land on top of each other and they're like that's how you avoid it. It's like if you don't land on top of that guy's shot, you're going to get a letter. Ah, uh, gotcha. No, there you go, and, and you're learning. Yeah, that's you know? that. And now, now with me being, I think let's see here, I started in '97. I'm coming up on oh thirty. Let's see here. 25 years yeah 25 26 yeah. years in the, in the in the in the game so it's like i know my way around a paintball gun and cleaning it and man and mix making it all work well and stuff like that so it's like got a lot of experience for us and that's when i i branched into archery and now i've, I've got a pretty good handle out of about six years into it but i'm still always learning with archery there's there's so much fun about it especially when you when i the people i get to talk to and learning their tips and tricks is just always exciting 
to gather that knowledge to pass into somebody new. Then now my next adventure is getting into more shooting because it's like I, I want to like being having an outdoor themed um, a media company like I have. It's like I need to get out and do more stuff too, not just strictly shoot my bow. It's like, but it's like I want to want to show people that I'm very well rounded and stuff like that. And it just like I'm a newbie when it comes to it. So it's like I'm that's thing. I'm very humble about it. If somebody's willing to sit down and give me 10, 15 minutes to give me some pointers, I'm all about it, man. Cause it's like it's so excited. And uh I used to run another podcast called the American Sheepdog Podcast. Now that was very um libertarian focused history, uh paying attention to a larger global stage, but also bringing on some unique people. Now, have you ever heard of Rich Graham? I um, I don't believe so. Now, Rich Graham is a retired Navy SEAL or Ranger. I think it's a Ranger. Uh, let me pull him up on my uh, Instagram here. And he runs full spectrum warrior down in Florida. Now you said you want to become more proficient with dialing your scope. He offers stage one, stage two, and stage three level coaching. He only does a maximum of eight guys and the prices are not that expensive. They're anywhere between, I don't know, 500 bucks to $800 for, and it's usually like a four or five day event. I mean, it's, it's not like a, in and out like you he really it's like these are eight hour days he you 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 and the other guys are all it's always focused on and teaching you how to do this and he offers all, all the different courses too so if you really want to take your game up but you have access to like snipers and stuff and that you you have that option but it, it's like for you to venture down to florida a and get some hog hunting in but two it's like getting this getting a chance to talk to him but look him up on instagram man he is an animal he still trains like he's still in special forces I think that's nice. because I think if he, if he, if he does need to be called up to the ranks to, to take care of our tyranny, you know, it's like, I don't expect it one, one blame him. Cause I don't, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the Italians SF guys, they were the, their Italians wanted the, the government wanted them to get the jab. They burned the building down. Now I'm not joking that the, 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 <laughs> it, it, the stuff that was housed, it was, it's no longer there. And so listening to like seeing them rise up above, you know, it's like, it's, it's a unique perspective because it's like, we would consider that terrorism or, or tyranny or a uh, traitor, but it's like, you know, when you want to enhance back, it's like, there's really a really ballsy thing to do. And they oh, blocked yeah. it. So, well, then again, we, whether it's true or not that they're the ones that actually did it, it's, it, it makes sense that something like that would uh, for them to know the knowledge to just to, to make the building fall down. Yeah, and not hurt anybody. So that's that's what really was a big one. It didn't hurt anybody. Wow, that's pretty uh, pretty interesting when you think about it. Yeah, when you, especially when you start, when you start seeing the people revolting. Yeah, Kazakhstan last week was all up in turmoil because their government was starting to raise all their prices and stuff. And their government said, "Yep, I'm out. I'm done. I'm, I am not going to be hung. I'm, this is not going to be the French Revolution here in Kazakhstan." It just that it, it makes you think about you know, was it three, two, three years ago with Venezuela? You know, it's like we haven't heard a, a peep about that. Every, you know, your, your focus has been a lot elsewhere. Oh, yeah. There's but, always a distraction it, going on. Yeah. But, I mean, you think about that. It's, I mean, again, something like that happens. You know, I, I don't even know what rules are with firearms down there. Can't imagine it's, you know, good. Uh, you know, but that's why, you know, you've got to have, as far as I'm concerned, you have a right you know, to bear arms and you should, and you should know how to do it well. And, and that's, you know, reloading and hand loading and, and knowing my firearms, 
you know, God forbid it ever come to that, but you know, I will be willing to defend. That is the unique thing about it. It's like I've listed a few people give their perspectives on if we ever would see a civil war. And I don't think people are ready to see the bloodshed at their own doorsteps. But once you cross that threshold into that life again, you can't, there's no real turning back. Because if we went that turmoil, our entire landscape would be different. But it's like, when is enough enough? Because right now, those who pay attention to history know is repeating what happened in 1930. That's why we have lawyers in the, in, in the White House and not historians, because we probably wouldn't be in the same scenario. <laughs> there's there's a lot that uh, conveniently gets swept under the rug and, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, Prince Andrew is trying to unload his uh, villa in, in Switzerland or something like that because he needs money. Because I guess his mom's told him he's not going to, she's not going to be paying for his uh, pedophile um, troubles. Uh, yeah. Good. So, so which is decent. But then again, it's like it's, it's all family. It's, they're all part of it. It's like once you, that's why uh, Epstein was, well, Epstein, because he was going to sing and Gisley Maxwell did a good girl and kept her mouth shut because that black book would incriminate thousands of people. And the judge was nominated for something special and it's perfect timing. Right. So there's a yeah. lot of things that are <laughs> unknown. And then with the California, you guys passed SB 145, which was um, changing the legal limit and stuff like that for how things get reported and such. It's like, yeah, if anything is going to happen in California, it's going to happen there first. And the worst part is though, it's like, when you look at the grand scheme of things, like what's all going on here, there's talks of DC putting together a permission or uh, passing EOs to allow for the FEMA camps to, to turn open like our, our 21st century of concentration camps. And the thing is like people are thinking that they're like, well, they're not going to tackle like Florida and uh, Texas right away. They're going to go after Chicago, New York, California, and now, now you have that army on top of it. Then they're going to go after Seattle, Oregon, Minneapolis, Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, and all the other blue states. You know, so it's like one of the things where we all need to be paying attention to it. Because, like I mentioned earlier, with the uh, recent ban in Utah with using uh, trail camps, because once you start taking things away, they're not going to give up that power trip because it's too intoxicating. Yeah, what they'll just. Once they and once they win, they move on to something else. I mean, look at California. I mean, mountain lion hunting has been outlawed since Reagan was president, and they, you know, the you know PETA and everybody else, all the antis have been trying to get different hunting eliminated. Well, then they said the lead is killing the condors, so we got copper ammo. You know, we got to shoot copper, okay? And then we we all discussed it you know, amongst my friends and on different forums, what's next? Well, now we can't hunt Bobcat, you know, stupid reasons, <laughs> you know, that they're putting out there. So I would, I would say that if, if you are a hunter and, um, you know, we, we fight in California all the time, but it's not as public, you know, Newsom doesn't like, uh, you know, the, the antis will make it public, but they just, you don't hear about it as often as, as some of the others. I think some of us, you know, I could care less if I hunt in California. I hate to say that, you know, I really do. Um, but, but the way things are going, I'd rather travel to Arizona or 
Nebraska or back to New York and hunt or find some friends that, that want to hunt, you know, in Nevada, you know, or Utah, wherever. Um, and it's easy to get over the counter licenses, you know, there, but, uh, right now, uh, Arizona, not Arizona. Yeah. Arizona is facing uh, a ban on mountain lion, bobcat and bear. So if, if you look up uh, on Instagram, I think it's uh, Hunt Arizona, Hunt underscore AZ. Uh, he did a, a post last night, actually, that, that I posted to my stories that uh, uh, I've got to write tomorrow to the legislature or fish and game out there. Um, basically, just the antis are the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And the more that they complain and, and just get all emotional about it you know if they're the ones that are heard they're the ones that they're gonna they're gonna take action on so we need to to do the same thing but i would highly recommend people you know whether it's this situation or others is don't get emotional about it uh emotions are gonna be a failure uh speak with facts yes and facts don't care about your feelings Exactly. And like you said, you know, what happened in 1930, you know, well, that wasn't a, oh, boo-hoo, I, I feel bad. No, it was, it's a fact. Same thing with, you can follow throughout history, those things happened. You know, knocking down these statues is not going to change the fact that they happened. Uh, right or wrong, they happened. It's part of history. And the reason those statues were taken down is because people complained and got up in arms and whether people were fearful of saying something or just didn't care about it you know uh if you want to be able to hunt and shoot and and have that freedom still you got to stand up and you got to take a stand and, and do something about it and you know you've got i can i can write letters and i mean i would love to go to the fish and game commission meetings uh out here you know, half the time they're not at the time that I can go or they're not near me. I mean, California is a big state, but I tell you what, if they were, you know, I think back 30 years ago when I was in New York, 20 years ago when I was in New York, I took a lot of it for granted. Older I get, the more I realize you got to be involved. That's the worst part about it. It's like the older you get, the more you got to be involved in politics. And it's like, that's the worst part about it. And it's just, it's so frustrating because when you're younger, you're so carefree. But as you start realizing all the pleasures, like right now, um, we're living in the golden years of all the hunting out there, but now they're, they're slowly taking away all those aspects. You know, we, we lost our, our wolf season here in Wisconsin last year. We, within like the first three days of the season being open, we hit our quota. And that just tells us one thing. There's a lot more wolves than the people that the DNR letting on to us, but we're, we're there. The DNR is not backing the hunters anymore. It's like they're, they're following their, whatever's giving them the money to do X project. That's where they're going to lean towards, you know, and that's where it gets frustrating. So it's like, we got to really, like we have um our big uh one of the richest person people live here is the guy that owns menards and it's like we need his money to help fight this this issue right here but it's like i don't know if he is an outdoorsman or not so that's the biggest thing it's like we need those bigger thing bigger names like joe rogan steve Renella, Randy newberg and stuff like i listened to Randy newberg and listening to his war stories and his horror stories of listening to montana reinducting the wolf um hunt and stuff like that it was it was just a nightmare like listening to his um, perspective on it, it's like it really gets a lot of people motivated to get after it. It's interesting you you say that too because he, Randy's a 
a great guy. You ask him a question, he'll he'll be honest with you and share it with you. He was at, he did a panel that shot two years ago, and I listened to it. And he was the only one on the whole panel that uh, um, that I thought was just uh, he he didn't speak with emotion, and he just came right out with facts. And you could tell. I mean, you see him in his videos and stuff. Yeah, he can get emotional and stuff like that. Everybody does, but he very t- to the point. And um, you know, he runs into issues out there when he's hunting. Um, Another video that I, you know, you you need to know, you need to know more than you think you need to know. I I guess it it sounds kind of goofy, but it's the truth. Uh, Another video I caught last night was, uh, um, why can't I think of his name? Dan. Anyway, he, uh, the, Dan, the, the fitness guy, uh, basically he, he went on a, on a hunt and he was using Onyx and the, uh, they got to, they went and they hunted and they came back up in the evening and they were confronted by a guy on the other side of the fence saying, you guys are trespassing. And they said, no, we got the, this is New Mexico land. No, this is, this is leased by so-and-so. And so they spent a good portion of that video talking to this guy and telling him, no, I don't think that's right. Well, of course they didn't have cell service. They went back to town. They spent a day going back and driving back to town to get cell service to find out what was going on. And the guy, this guy did lease the land, but he leased it for grazing rights. He has no control over the hunting rights. And I said, see, there's, there's a fact that I didn't know, but if you're deciding to hunt New Mexico uh, this is where I think they were in unit nine, which doesn't matter where you are. It could be any state. Um, I've had, I've had confrontations with people um, when I'm hunting. You can't hunt here. Uh, I most certainly can hunt here. It's legal. No, it's not. No, it's not. I'm calling the cops. I'm like, please do call them. Have them come out. I'll show them my, my map. I'll show them the regulations. Now, you have to be careful. You don't want to get emotionally caught up and stuff like that because I su- fully support law enforcement. But you also have to remember that the law enforcement is there to enforce the law. They're not in- there to enforce fish and game regulations. They, they are to a-, to a degree, but they don't know the regulations. They know what the-, the city code is and what you can and cannot do and if I'm hunting and I'm on public land, pretty much all that they care about. A game warden's going to want to know where I was, what I'm hunting, what ammo I'm using. You know what I mean? So um, getting the police involved, you know, if somebody wants to do that, make sure you, you know, you have your facts, you have everything ready, but don't put them in a bind either. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good to have those court cases and everything like ready to go in a sense when you go after that. Cause like I have a friend of mine down in Florida and uh, one, before we sat down and recorded a podcast is he runs a, uh, the best patrol nation. And I was talking about, we got to, we got confronted by a guy that we were, we were fishing one of those ponds. Cause Florida has those little ponds all over the place and stuff like that. And I was talking about it and like, I wasn't fully aware of it. So I wasn't going to, um, 
create a scene. And I know I didn't know the statute any laws behind it. So I was like, you know, I'll just be I'll be courteous because I asked the guys like, hey, how's the fishing here? Stuff like that. And he kind of gave me his honest opinion about it. So it's really kind of gone downhill and stuff like that. But he, he kind of alluded that I can't fish here. But then after talking, he's he's um was state police. He, he's changed careers now working for the aquarium. But it's like, no, it's like if it's not clearly marked or stated by law, it's like you can fish there. Stuff like that. And it's like, but I like in my mind, it's like I ain't gonna ruffle his feathers. I don't need the drama. I can go someplace else. And plus, where I was yeah. fishing at, it was so it's so shallow. I could see the bottom. It's like I ain't gonna why cast in a place that's so shallow. And it was already one o'clock in the afternoon, so it's like the fishing's already shut down. Yeah, bath water, you know. Yeah, exactly. And once it once it gets too warm, it's like they really don't get it all that active. Yeah, but but you're right. You you, you made a good point with the signs too. It's same same thing with hunting land out here, you know, and, and public land. Like if they don't if if people don't have it posted. Yeah, it's yeah, you can be trespassing, but you have to be very careful. Um, I know a lot of people that will push that limit and don't don't get pushy, you know, um, know your boundaries and everything like that. But know them before you go. Take take a little bit of extra time with it. Um, yes, it can be tedious at times and seem like it's monotonous. Yeah, that's why I, I like using Onyx because it's very, very accurate for that reason. Yeah, yeah, very accurate. And and the thing I like about it too is, say you do come up on private land, well, you can find out who owns it. You can, you know, you can ask. I mean, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, people out here, you know, where you can go hunting, you know, Central Coast, they don't like the LA type. You know, and they consider me the LA type and I'm far from it, but because I live down here, I can ask to hunt their property and they're basically going to slam the door in my face. And you know what? I can't get butthurt about it. It's their land. You know, uh, Keanu Reeves had a, has a great quote, you know, talking about how people get so upset about being rejected. He said, you should be thankful. You should be thanking them because now you don't have to waste your time with them anymore. And it's so true. Same, you know, if there's, you know, land that you want to hunt with the way I've found it is, you know, offer to help the people with the land, you know, or, uh, you know, Hey, I'll, I'll come out and work, work. If I want to hunt for a day, I'll, I'll work for a day or I'll help trim trees or whatever. Half the time, they're not even going to take you up on it, but the fact that you're willing to do it says something about you. That reminds me of a story from my listeners have already heard the story, but I, there was a guy I hunted with in Southeastern Minnesota and let it, he let us on his land. But it, when it came springtime, it was me and my buddy. And we're the only ones that are out there, but we would walk out there and we, we would walk out there with chainsaws in hand. So this way we could walk through and see what the winter had done to the land. So that and report back on where there are down fences because he runs cattle. And so uh, we, that's what we would do. We would get to be April, be walking out to look for shed hunting, looking, and then was it got into May looking for morels, but we would bring him, bring our chainsaws out there and we'd, and we'd walk on out there. We'd park, he told us you can park right here. If I know you're parking here, I know what you're doing. So it's like, just, just park there, walking out, you don't even worry about permission, which was great. Guy is an awesome dude. His wife, his, his mom is even nice because they, they own houses like category from each other, but to kind of keep the land in the family, it just kind of made sense. And, uh, it was great at 1200 acres and we got to hunt all of it which was fantastic and so we'd go down there and he also has two uh, spring fed creeks 
So we'd go out there and we'd look, we'd walk those creek beds to make sure there's no down trees, nothing to cause the, the DNR to come on, have a conversation. Cause they, they've always, sometimes they've been kind of smug to them and, and they never know what kind of attitude they're going to be in, but their whole thing is they're wondering like, why is this stuffed up down the range there? And so that's what we would do. We'd go out there and cut them up and pull the logs out of the water. The best we could, cause some of them were pretty heavy, but that's what we sure. did. And he, and we, he didn't ask, we just did it. And he loved, and it's like, I still have a relationship with him, but it's like the, there's another guy that hunts there more often than I do. And he can be kind of a dick. And so it's like, you know, I'm younger than you. So it's like, I'm probably going to survive this uh, pandemic here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those type of know-it-alls and it's, and it's not very fun to be around because he thinks he knows all the right answers. And it's like, you know, when you have the type of an attitude, you don't, you don't attract a lot of uh, friends. True. And, and you've got to be willing to willing to take advice. I think that the, the, what I try to, to tell people is it doesn't cost you anything to take advice. It's up to you whether you act on it. And it, it took me a while. I mean, when I was younger, um, you know, I wouldn't say I knew everything, but I didn't want to hear people telling me, you know, what I've been doing for five years and I do it well, you know, don't tell me your, your way of doing it. Now I welcome it, you know, just because I went through all that reloading with you, I'm sure that there's somebody that can do it better. I'm sure there's somebody that can, you know, trim an arrow better. I know for a fact, there's guys that shoot bows better than me. I mean, I go out with the Badlands crew and, <laughs> you know, two of those guys show me up right away. But then again, they they practice they do a lot of target archery and they know their equipment. I'm, I'm one of those guys that likes to know my equipment really well across the board. You know, I like to be good, you know, what they say, you know, jack of all trades, you know, master of none. It, hey, I'm, I'm, I know a little bit about everything just to keep me interested and to keep me going. I don't necessarily, I don't think I ever want to be a, an expert in, in one thing. Um, to me, there's no, uh, when I used to give seminars with Bass Pro, um, just haven't for the last couple of years, obviously. Uh, but they would, you know, in, in the flyers and everything, they would put down, you know, bow hunting expert. And I'm like, oh, I really, I wish you guys wouldn't use that. Why? But you know, this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I'm no expert. There are guys that have been doing it far longer than I have. There are guys that are younger than me that have been doing it better than I have. There always will be. The, the fact is, I'm sure, I'm, I have a lot of knowledge. And I'm willing to help anybody, you know, improve or to get into it. But I'm no expert. Um, and it, it, it does make me feel uncomfortable to be, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert. You know, God, God's the expert, not me. Yeah. You know, all we can do is continue learning and such. And that's, that's all I really asked for. So, man, we've, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour, man. We, we were, we're, we're, uh, we've hit the two hour mark and you, it's been a while since I've had a really engaging, uh, conversation that yeah. goes past an hour and, and a half or so. It's like, so I greatly appreciate your time. And so I want to make sure you get back to your family and, and, 
it was it was it was a pleasure having you on. I'm glad I was you. It's like you popped up at the right time in my feed, and it gave me the inspiration to keep walking on because I've I've learned I need to just follow my dopamine and just go from there, and then just see where it leads me and what I learned from it. Because you answered all my questions, the best of to your knowledge, and it allowed for me to create that food for thought to continue going down that avenue. You know, to constantly continue asking questions. You know, and then figuring out what what I should get. And it's like because now it's like. Listening to you is, is I need to, I need to, I want to really focus on like a, what you, what you really want to do and like how many more around, how many more uh, rifles you want to go with and stuff like that. Cause it can, it, it can be, it, um, we don't have a lot of time and we're very busy people. And it's like, and you, you, you and I both understand that. So it's like, it kind of gives me an idea of like, which one should I look at? Cause it's like, right now I was telling you about where I want to go with the EPC and then going with the sidearm. So it's like having, a shared platform and having that kind of fun between the two of them. Plus then I can, I just need to find the law, figure out the laws here is like, is this like, I know 45 is a legal caliber while now moving in this to into enhanced pistol, what barrel length do I need to be? Do you also be legal to hunt with too? Cause like, I like to, I like to create new challenges and it's like, why not? Wouldn't it be fun to go out with a 45 round and drop a deer. I, mean, I think that'd be yeah. fun. It's like, it's, 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 a, it's a goal that's achievable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if it doesn't make sense to anybody, it's like, it doesn't have to make sense to you. It's like, it make, I'm happy about it. It's like, it gives me something new to strive for. Yeah. And, and as long as we're supportive of one another, you know, there's, there's, there's far too many people that, Oh, you're going to, you want to hunt with a 45, you know, it's like, what do you care if you're not going to do it? You know, Hey, I think it's, if you want to challenge yourself, go for it. You know, by all means, I'd love to hear the story. You know, I'd love to hear the process behind it, you know, and you could, you know, there's nothing stopping you except you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of this gentleman's name. His name's uh, Toby Hughes. He is a Buckmaster elite uh, measurer. He knows how to, he measures everything. And he went out hunting this year and he shot it. He shot himself a gorgeous buck. I think it was like a 160 class or one. So he does, he's, 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 he's been hunting for a lot of years and he shot him a, a buck with a 45. Race like and I think his write up was like I think he ran like forty five yards and it piled over. It's like man, that's awesome with the forty five pistol. It's like that's pretty neat. It's exciting yeah. to hear about stuff like that. It's and if, if you ever have a chance to look him up on Facebook, I'm not sure if he has much of Instagram, but like that's where he fo- focuses all that stuff for Buckmasters. That's a similar to like Pope and Young and stuff like that. That's what they they go out and measure racks of all sorts of animals and such, and, do, and also make categories for it too. So this way, then you have an opportunity to get in this book where like Pope and Young and everything like that. You have to hit one of the rarest ones to be able to have your name even be registered in the top 10, you know, cause it's like, it's just a prestigious um, list to be on. And he's gets to um, measure all the way up to like two fifty class bucks all the way down to the one forty. He doesn't care how small they're, he just likes giving them, giving the person a peace of mind that this is your experience more in detail because now when people talk about that one buck they shot well it was it was a 120 class but listen to what i had to do to get him and the story behind him now it's like it just adds more to the onion because it's like it's so much more fun to listen to somebody talk about a specific hunt and they just their eyes light up because it's, it's passionate it's like it gets to bring out their inner child completely agree you know, and it's, it's, it's awesome to hear the stories, you know, especially with the new, the new hunters that, you know, 
well, I only shot, I'm, I'm tired of, of hearing people saying I only shot a doe or I shot this buck and I, he's own. I know he's not a, a big, you know, it's your deer. Yeah. You I, sh- I shot a doe you this know? year and she was, uh, she, I think she only weighed, I think dressed maybe 70 pounds, 80 pounds, but she was, I, I still managed to get like 35, 40 pounds of meat off of her. But the funny thing, the nice thing is, is like, she came out on my left-hand side at, at, uh, at 25 yards. I drew back, put an arrow right through it, a complete pass through, which is my first one. And, uh, I, I had meat, I have meat in the freezer now and I'm hoping to, I have still have three more tags here to hopefully tag out for the rest of this year. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath because I got, a, I got still stuff planned out. And so I, I gotta, I gotta, figure out how to manage my time over the, over the next couple, next three weekends to see when I can actually go out and hunt and like be able to be able to have that, uh, that's that inspiring. Cause it's like, I, I like my daughter when she, when I come home with something, she lights up and she, it's like, it's, I have to, I have to sacrifice time to be, to, to do this, but being able to come home with something, letting her be a part of it. It just, it just allows her to have that, that confidence. Cause I want to show her that everybody can win at one thing or another. it's like, you just got to dedicate yourself to it and having that discipline to equal that freedom. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, and you've got meat in the freezer. Yeah. That's the best yeah. part. And she loves venison. My Lord. It's like, as soon as my ex and I, as soon as we, she had teeth, it's like, we, we started feeding her wild game. Cause it was like, we wanted her to have all these experiences. So now when we go out to, um, out to a restaurant, we have this hibachi grill place here in town and she orders a swordfish and she's eight years old and she was, she wanted to try it out. And there's, there's a group of ladies across the, t- across the way for, they're all in their mid twenties, something like that. And they order chicken. And it's like, I want her, it's like, you know, it's like, you, you know, you never know when you're dying. So it's like, well, now she knows, she knows ta- uh, um, what um, swordfish tastes like. And she, she likes salmon. So it's like, she likes these variety of things. And it's like, that's what I, I grasp, I, I, I strive for is to have that curiosity about life and trying new things. Like my, my new that's adventure great. is going to be getting into laser engraving. So I spent the weekend looking at that. I found out that I want to, I need to have a full enclosure. The only downside that adds like an extra 1500 bucks to it. But the upside is though, it, it purifies that toxins that come out because the, the uh, tumblers that I have, they're coated. Well, a laser engraver will eat that away. And now you have a, a defined logo in there. That's easier to read than, and, and, and plus it's dishwasher safe. Now the downside is when it's eaten, when it's cut through that, it produces a chemical smell. And it's like, I don't want anybody in, uh, ingesting that because I worked around toxic chemicals like he, with um, fiberglass and resin and all that stuff like that. And I used to bathe in acetone. Like it would be so bad that my breath would smell like acetone. Really? Oh yeah. Acetone is very, wow. it, it absorbs into your skin and it's like, you, you can wear PPE for it, but it doesn't matter. It did the, the tox, the acid of it destroys anything rubber and leather doesn't work out. Cause then it, it just, it just kind of gets worn out from the inside. So it's, um, it's something I'm glad I'm out of. I've been out of it for a lot of years, but I have no idea the damage that would have, may have been done because we tried to follow the EPA as best we can and follow our best safety protocol, but you're bound. It's still, you're still inhaling it. So breathing it in. So it's, it's frustrating. Well, now before we close here, what are some of the best ways to get a hold of you and find your information, find your blog? You can find me. Uh, my blog's real easy. SoCalBowHunter.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, uh, the underscore SoCal underscore bow hunter. 
that's probably where you're going to find me most active. Uh, I am on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, the SoCal Bow Hunter. I'm not really active on Twitter anymore. Uh, most people want to see see a picture and and uh, or a video and a description. So I, I, I focus more of my energy on, on Instagram and my blog. But that's where you can find me. And if my email is real easy, the SoCal Bow Hunter at yahoo.com. So I encourage anybody if you have a question, you know, you have a comment, you want know, to bust my chops, send me a message. You know, I got thick skin. I've been in this game a long time. <laughs> that is so true. Well, thank you, Alan. This was a, do you go by Al or Alan? I should ask in the beginning. Uh, I go by Al uh, because it, my, my real name's Albert. So, you know, I, I just go by Al. If, if somebody calls me Albert, you know, I owe him money or, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I know the feeling like my name's Je- my, my full name is Jeffrey, but everybody goes, I go by Jeff just because it's like, I don't like my full name. Cause it's like, it just, it just, it just PTSD flashbacks of having my name completely spoken out loud by my elders. And it's like, well, I messed up, but here's the punishment. <laughs> well, Al, thank you for coming on. You, you were a pleasure to talk to and you gave me a lot of good insight. I'm looking forward to watching your videos and your upcoming, um, uh, post when it will shot show next week and are you flying in on on set are you are you driving in on uh sunday to be there on monday morning i'm actually driving uh driving on saturday um we're gonna we're gonna run out of range to to shoot on sunday and just spend some time getting all four you know all four of us together and just kind of talk and shop and w- what we want to do for the uh for the show itself and what what my game plan is, what they would like to do as well, and and have that mesh. Perfect, beautiful. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate you uh, taking your time for doing this. And uh, thank you, audience, for tuning in. Please go like and subscribe, and please comment and review. I appreciate the the insight. But uh, thank you. Mm-hmm.